post-show recaps is recorded in front of a live studio audience. Trust in the story, vilify the villains and celebrate the heroes. You could believe in the guts and the glory ways. Those were the better days. Where did those times go? Mr. Robot, Season 2, Episode 6, Master Slave is over. But believe me, we're just getting started here at Post Show Recaps. Hello, everyone. This is not the person that you normally hear kicking off the Mr. Robot podcast here at Post Show Recaps. I am Antonio Mazzaro. Josh Wiggler, the normal host of this show, is... Well, I don't really know where Josh Wiggler is. He's maybe checked himself in somewhere for a little R&R, a little break. I'm not sure what version of reality Josh is currently in. He may be living a Vacation with the Wigglers, a long-running sitcom beloved from the Word Up Wednesday block on USA Network from the early 1990s. In his place, Josh is not here, but in his place, we have a great guest Post-show recap zone, Mike Bloom. Mike, how are you? I'm assuming this is where you pipe in the soundbite of the studio audience applauding, right, to my cameo? Oh, post-show recaps is recorded in front of a live studio audience, Mike. Did you not know this? I didn't hear a disclaimer beforehand, so I wasn't sure. Oh, well, it's there. Believe me, it's there. Well, uh, you just didn't hear it because, well, we're here on stage in front of the audience. Hello, audience. Hello, audience, and hello, road extending elsewhere. I will try not to run behind you because, as Mr. Robot told us many times in the first 20 minutes, there is no looking back on this podcast or in any medium. That's a lie. We're going to look back this whole time. That's all we do here at Post Show Recaps. It's right there in the name of the website, Post Show Recaps. We are after one of the most uh, gripping, incredibly unusual episodes (laughs) of Mr. Robot. I would say, Mike, you're laughing. I would say of, of modern television that I can think of, I think there are a lot of standout episodes that exist in the modern TV pantheon, but I can't think of one that really took as much of a big step in the genre-bending direction as Mr. Robot just did. I mean, I would almost compare it to you and I covered Community a couple of years ago here on Post Show Recaps. This seems like something Dan Harmon would build an entire episode out of. Yeah, it's there's a lot of meta for sure. There's a it's a show within a show and the characters are maybe aware of what's going on. Elliot is very cognizant of something not being right. Uh, Elliot Alderson, the character, maybe not aware he's on Mr. Robot, the TV show, but he's aware he's on Mr. Robot, the sitcom. And that is happening throughout. So you're right. There is a meta aspect to it as well. There's really, Mike, there's so much to break down. We're going to jump right into it. But this, if this is your first time listening to our Mr. Robot podcast here at Post Show Recaps, you can, as always, subscribe to our Mr. Robot iTunes feed. That is Post Show Recaps. Recaps.com slash Mr. Robot iTunes, MR Robot iTunes. That will get you the Mr. Robot only feed from Post Show Recaps. You can also always subscribe to everything we do at Post Show Recaps, postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes. Mike, you just had a review of Suicide Squad. Is that right? Yes. We went over the dark, fun, but uh, sometimes head scratching film that was Suicide Squad. And it's safe to admit, I got together with Kevin Mahadeo, Alex Kidwell. A little bit of a spoiler alert. I think all of us, like Angela, kind of wanted to wipe our fingerprints from that film by the end of it. 
Yeah, and I, I'm, we're not going to wipe our fingerprints from this episode, but you're right. Dark, confusing, head-scratching. A lot of those same adjectives can be applied to this episode of Mr. Robot. So I'm really looking forward, Mike, to breaking into this one with you and getting your thoughts on the show as a whole. We've also really been very thankful for all the feedback we're receiving about our Mr. Robot podcast throughout the run of Mr. Robot. You can always email us directly for the show at mrrobot at postshowrecaps.com. That's mrrobot at postshowrecaps.com. You can also go to postshowrecaps.com slash feedback if you're more comfortable with sending feedback that way. And you can send feedback on Twitter. I am at AC Mazzaro, two Zs, one R. Josh is at Round Howard. And if you want to talk to Mike about this episode, Mike is at a Mike Bloom type. You can also hit Mike up if you're looking to cast an aim at Mike Bloom type. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. I star in many things, including a Bud Light beer commercial as one of the puppies that ran through the flaming hoop. I was wondering if that was you. I was going to ask you if that was you. We were going to get into that. We'll get into that for sure. I was definitely wondering if that was you. I thought maybe it was that you were the Ring of Fire, but yeah, you're one of the puppies. Makes no, no, sense, no. Actually. I don't have enough Johnny Cash in me to be a Ring of Fire. Hey, it's a burning thing and it makes a fiery ring, Mike. Now listen, Mike, you've never joined us on the Mr. Robot podcast. I know everyone wants to get into this. You're a great person to talk to about this episode specifically because, as you note, you and I have talked about other sitcoms here at Post Show Recaps, and I know you're a big sitcom guy. But, Mike, what are your thoughts overall on Mr. Robot, the series, and specifically where we're at, the state of the state here with season two after this episode? Are you satisfied? A lot of people feel a little unmoored, but I, I want to know where you're at with this, Mike. Yeah, ironically enough, I feel like the community of Mr. Robot fans have been very dissociative, for lack of a proper term, on their opinions on this season thus far, and we're halfway through, so I'm sure at some point we're going to kind of do a deeper dive as to what the season is thus far and what could it, it could possibly be moving forward. So... I remember a couple years ago listening to Rob Sesternino talk about the show Mad Men and saying how, in his opinion, Mad Men is so literary and, and so deep in its themes and its characterizations that it almost plays like a book. And after Mad Men kind of came and went, I thought of if there were any shows on the air that kind of still filled that whole if you will and i would scratch the itch in that part of your brain exactly and i would say there are two shows on air that do accomplish that and those are the leftovers and mr robot i think mr robot is so interestingly written in that you can almost take every single piece of dialogue from each episode and ascribe two or three different meanings to it and it's very rare that you can find that on tv even nowadays in the golden age of television one of the things that I feel like also makes Mr. Robot a very atypical show, aside from the fact that sometimes it spends 20 minutes in a sitcom-like fantasy, is it's interestingly plotted. You know, I feel like a lot of TV shows, even today, again, in the golden age of television, have a good beginning, middle, and end over the course of their hour-long episode. Mr. Robot doesn't ascribe to that formula whatsoever. I mean, we're going to even going to see it this episode. There are a couple of storylines that are going to end right in the middle of the action. I think you guys talked at one point about how Mr. Robot kind of feels like a 10-hour movie, or at least the first season did. Now we're going on a 12-hour movie. And I cover Orphan Black for Post Show Recaps as well, and that's the only other show that I could really say the same thing about. But Orphan Black at least makes things a little bit self-contained. It makes sure to arc things over the course of its 40-something minutes to end on a reasonable high note and a cliffhanger. Mr. Robot kind of throws caution out the car window, if you will, onto, onto that road and never looks back. And that's something that has always intrigued me about this show. I'll admit that, obviously, 
it's very graphic. It's very dark. I'm not someone as a person who grew up watching more sitcoms than NYPD Blue. I don't know if I if I necessarily am into the completely dark and immoral aspects of this show. But that being said, it has gripped me from the beginning. And I'll include this season as well. I know a lot of people feel that this season is sort of like getting to the fireworks factory in a way. That we really ended season one on such a bombastic note as the world almost pretty much exploded, financially speaking. Where yeah. the hack happened and... E Corp is essentially building from the ground up, and we have this big revelation about Mr. Robot, and we ended things on such a climactic note on season one that when season two has come in, and admittedly it has been more slowly paced, it's been angering fans a little bit more, especially the question of where is Tyrell, though we'll probably get into that in a little bit. It seems like we're getting closer and closer to that solution. But that being said, I'm almost fine with it. I mean, we do a lot of world building in shows and i feel like season one is the perfect time to kind of build world and mr robot did that but at the same time mr robot kind of blew up that world at the end of episode nine in season one and now they're building again it's almost like we're undergoing a second world building process so it's almost like we're undergoing a second version of season one season one 2.0 if you will and that being said, I'm, I'm willing to give the show a little bit more credit, and I'm willing to give them a little bit more leeway in that they're building up these, they're building in these new characters. They're trying to put Elliot in new environments. They're trying new things. So I'm willing to give them a little bit more patience to tell this story because it essentially feels like they're going back to the beginning. Yeah. If anything, I think an episode like last night's is an evidence of the show's confidence in itself, the balls-out ability to do an episode like that, where your first 19 minutes are a pastiche or some kind of play on not only the elements of the world that you've built, but it's re-world building. It's building worlds within worlds. In, in season one, you had world building, as you're pointing out, but one of the key aspects and elements of that world is you had an unreliable narrator and a character who was very driven and very possessed by the guidance of what was happening with this father figure that he'd created that he was remembering from his childhood that was leading him throughout. And in this season, he's still very much battling with being controlled by that father figure. Last night's episode was called Master Slave, and Elliot, in many ways, has been a slave to Mr. Robot throughout the course of this season. And Elliot's looking as a character, not just as a person, but as a character. You can talk about it happening in a dramatic, a dramatic narrative way, or you can talk about it happening just as it would be happening to him in the show. He's looking for personal growth. He's looking for an arc. He's looking to put Mr. Robot to bed and to make progress, to find happiness, to find the dreams that are worth fighting for. But he's struggling with that. And that has been the central conflict of Elliot throughout the course of this first part of the, the season, the first half. And I think for some people, that's not the same as Elliot as a hacker in an action-packed sequence trying to get away from whoever is bothering him or coming after him, whether it's the FBI or whether it's someone at Steel Mountain or the Dark Army or Tyrell Wellick or all of it. That's a very fast-paced show. That's a show that certainly season one had a lot of elements of, but I think we're really getting into a position where we're pulling the lens back. And we've been talking a ton on this podcast about the world building that's going on and about whether or not what Elliot is seeing and experiencing is real or whether it's some version of something that Elliot is creating to protect himself. And I think the most interesting thing about the 19 minutes from last night are that was a world that Mr. Robot was creating 
to hide Elliot, to protect Elliot, to shelter him from the actual physical pain of being beaten down as a result of what happened with Ray. That is the ultimate reason for the sitcom world, that Mr. Robot has created this to protect Elliot. Mr. Robot is a manifestation of Elliot. So Elliot has created this own world to protect Elliot from some pain or from admitting something bigger is going on. Isn't that what we've been debating, Mike, is possible or not possible about Elliot's current living situation that he's representing through his mother and her house and the living room? Didn't we go in with both feet on this last night of Elliot creating a world to protect himself? Exactly. And I mean, Elliot also kind of talked about a little bit about it in the beginning of season one when he went through that happy giddy montage of you know i'm sort of creating my own reality here by being for lack of better terms a basic bitch so i feel like this show is all about creating realities even separate from the operation called berenstain the thing that i felt like this episode did and i know there's been a lot of criticisms online that people felt there really wasn't anything you know character there wasn't anything that was really moving along characterization in this episode. But what I would argue is that arguably one of the weakest parts of this first half of the second season, which is the Mr. Robot Elliot dynamic. I personally feel like it's been interesting to watch them play chess and to have, you know, Mr. Robot create this illusion of Elliot getting concrete poured down his throat. But it almost seems like we're circling the same principle. This, in my opinion, was one of the most illuminating episodes for the Mr. Robot character that we've seen on the series thus far. Yeah, what's your take on that? Because Josh Wiggler, as everyone knows who listens to this podcast, has always previously been dug in on Mr. Robot as an anarchic representation. Like Elliot's sort of unbridled id, this this version of him that is only pursuing chaos or anarchy, that isn't pursuing other goals. And then any time that Mr. Robot has protected Elliot, it's only been to serve Mr. Robot's bigger goal of causing damage and destruction in Elliot's life and in the world at large. As you're pointing out, last night's episode, these first 19 minutes, Mr. Robot seemed to have created that world simply to protect Elliot. During the sitcom scene, he says to Elliot, you might just thank me once I get here. We end the episode between the two of them with Rami Malek in a beautiful performance, crying and collapsing into Mr. Robot's arms, saying thank you. So in some ways, Mr. Robot has in fact done what what he said he was going to do, which is make Elliot thank him, but it seems truly to be motivated by seeking to protect him. Uh, and then we get the scene between Mr. Robot and young Elliot as well, which is along those same lines before everything kind of fell apart. So my question is, what is your view on Mr. Robot's role in Elliot's life? And I should say, Josh was sort of backpedaling on this by the end of last episode. So we are on an arc. We are making progress in terms of tracking this relationship. Nothing is wheels spinning. Everything we get between the two of them is more information about what is this person's role in Elliot's life? Why does he manifest him? How is he manifesting and what is he doing for Elliot? Uh, because of the chess match with Ray, Josh was changing his tune a little bit. I'm wondering where you see this, especially in light of last night's episode. I mean, this totally makes sense from a show running perspective. When we had the big reveal that Mr. Robot was, as you said, Elliot's sort of manifested id, that character is going to go one note really quickly. And again, this might stem to some people's frustration with this season thus far is that the first couple of episodes, Mr. Robot was going back to the Mr. Robot that we know. Here we're representing him as more of a three-dimensional character. And not only does it allow for Christian Slater to play more of a nuanced performance, but it makes it a little bit more of a tug and war. A tug of war, I should say. Now that we have Miss, uh, Elliot kind of come to the realization 
my chess masters are always going to end in a, in a stalemate. There's really no fighting or defeating him. I mean, even in this first 19 minutes, he's going to say at the very end of it, he's going to make the assumption that, oh, Mr. Robot has trapped me in here. This is my prison, which again speaks towards the theory that you had mentioned beforehand. He's won, and Mr. Robot says, you know, nobody's won here. We just do what we do, essentially. And I think that that's an important line for this character because this character was so largely focused on a concept of winning in the first season, in my opinion, of we have to do this, we have to def- we have to plan this hack, we have to defeat these people, then we'll win. Here, winning doesn't necessarily matter to him, or at least the character that he's projecting in this fantasy, which I'm sure we can talk about as to how much of this manifestation that Christian Slater's playing in the first 19 minutes is Edward, and how much is Mr. Robot. But that being said, there was so much shading done on this character that I thought was really beneficial because I did not want, you know, Christian Slater as grown-up Tyler Durden for the next however many episodes that Mr. Robot runs. I feel like that would get stale very, very quickly. So even though, you know, it might be seen as backpedaling on this whole idea of him as a chaotic element, I liked it overall in terms of the looking at the story arc as a whole. I think looking forward, we're going to see a much more complicated Mr. Robot, and I think that's going to be for the better. Yeah, it's fascinating that Elliot seemingly manifests Mr. Robot for a wide variety of reasons, because he wants to push him in a negative direction, or he wants to give in to these anarchic urges, or these urges that are more destructive. And in this case, he's manifesting him and using him ultimately to create a world where Elliot's more protected, and where there's less anarchy, and less craziness, and less confusion. And I think that that's fascinating. So for a lot of people, I think that the first 19 minutes of last night felt like a really cool... Uh, element of artistry, a parlor trick, if you will, something fun, but not something vital to the story. And I, I would vehemently disagree in that I really do feel like this continued idea, because every time Mr. Robot does something, it's really Elliot doing something, that this continued idea of how Elliot brings this character into being and what it does to drive him and the the relationship that is evolving between the two of them in that regard, uh, it's really fascinating. And mm-hmm. it is it's not only fascinating because because it is something that it, it's outside of our worldview. We don't experience the world through this lens by and large, unless you're someone with a disassociative personality disorder. Uh, it's also fascinating because this could actually be character growth for Elliot. And the the fact is there is one big elephant in the room between them. And it was played out in a very comedic fashion, Mike, in this first 20 minutes, which is the Tyrell, El- the Tyrell Wellick of it all. The Tyrell Wellick, where is Tyrell? Mr. Robot probably knows what happened to Tyrell. Elliot does not. The fact that Mr. Robot is not telling Elliot what is happening with Tyrell is a major source of conflict between the two of them. And in fact, one of the biggest sources of conflict between the two of them, Elliot doesn't like that there's this part of him that knows about things that are going on that he doesn't know about and that can hold them and lord them over him. So I think that that's a fascinating underpinning of what's happening. And it was played out really comedically in the, in the, the episode last night to the point where Tyrell Wellick ran into the green screen mic (laughs) yeah which again is speaking towards a very meta aspect of almost no escape which probably informed elliot's false assumption at the end that he would be trapped in some sort of prison this whole idea of escapism is so intriguing as well because like you said it is mr robot kind of 
seeking safe haven in this fantasy, but it is Elliot that's doing so. And from what I was reading behind the scenes after this episode came out, Sam Esmail kind of came to the writer's room and said, okay, if Elliot wanted to escape into any sort of fantasy, where do you think he would go? And because he had such a bad home life, it would be these pitch-perfect, squeaky-clean families that existed on TGIF, your full house, your perfect strangers, your family matters, etc. It reminded me a lot, actually, of the musical Fun Home. You guys had so much fun uh, referencing musicals last week that I feel like I had to chime in. (laughs) You have Uh, to. So the musical Fun Home, just a brief synopsis, is about the the life of Alison Bechdel, who's a a graphic artist and actually the namesake of the Bechdel Bechdel test. test. But it's uh, simultaneous stories of her coming into her own homosexuality simultaneously with her father spurning of his own. And there's this one scene where their family is watching the Partridge family. And she, her parents get into an argument. Obviously, her home life is very torrid. And she shuts her ears and she just starts singing this song. And then suddenly, a disco ball starts spinning around. These drapes fall down. Everyone comes out in leisure suits. And they perform, uh, they perform a partridge-like number called Raincoat of Love. And I saw a lot of similarities here to what I both experienced in Fun Home and the aforementioned community. There's an episode where, for example, when Abed uh, imagines a claymation Christmas fantasy to cope with his own feelings of hurt that his mother would not be joining him, his feelings of abandonment. The fact that all of these situations are diving into things that make you happy to turn off your pains and your hurts that exist in your life, whether it be emotional, whether it be behavior related, whether it be actually physical in the case of Elliot, is something that I've always loved because it allows you to be as fantastical and as genre bending as you want it to be. So that being said, I definitely really enjoyed these first 20 minutes as well. I'll admit that they might have been, you know, playing right into my wheelhouse as someone who grew up on these shows in syndication in my youth. But as you said, I liked not only the painstaking work that went into the production elements of it, but also what it stood for, uh, that this is the place that Elliot chose to go to, and he found out that maybe the grass isn't always greener on the other side. I think the the pristine nature of his family stays pristine for all of five minutes before his mom is burning Darlene with a cigarette butt. The line comes up of, oh, is that cancer? You know, it sounds like that cancer is acting up again. We get this extremely dark, too many cooks-esque opening credits where it's, you know, Mr. Robot at the doctor, Angela crying at her mother's funeral, Gideon's back again, but he's reading his own death on the front page of the newspaper. And we start to realize that everything is really not as it seems here, that as much as Elliot is really trying to escape the realities that his past has kind of informed in his character, he, they're, they're part of him. He says, you know, in the gas station, I believe, he says, you know, uh, Alderson's are one for Alderson and Alderson for one. And it's very meaningful in that all of the, I feel like all the characteristics of these Aldersons are kind of inherent within Elliot. He is his past as much as he tries to escape it, as much as he tries to sort of disguise it in backdrops of roads and guest spots by alien puppets. 
there really is no escape from the reality that he's going through right now. I'm always going to be there, Willie. I'm right here. Hey, I kill me. Yeah, Alf shows up. What the hell? There's some really great things that happen in this sequence. And we've gone, uh, you, you sort of danced around it. But we've gone really too far into this podcast without geeking out over this and talking about how incredibly well made it was, how there were hilarious cameos, how the laugh track was really playing in, the way it was shot, not only the beta tape that it was shot on, but the four by three framing. It was not a widescreen thing. The commercials, Mike, the commercials, uh. you joked about it in the intro, but we have an actual Bud Light commercial we have made up e-corp commercials and a commercial for usa networks up all night featuring the massacre of the bourgeoisie so that's happening and all of this was really just phenomenal stuff just they really leaned into it at one point during the actual commercial break there was even a throwback style commercial for suits mike did you believe did you see that yeah, I was a little confused about that. And I will say, as much as I'm praising this opening sequence, it might have run a tad long for my liking, especially since we got out of it after 20 minutes. I thought for a second that we would spend the entire episode in this format, which would have been pretty groundbreaking. But the fact that we kind of dipped our toes in the water, or I guess in this fact, kind of stood in the water knee deep and then waded our way out, kind of took away from me a little bit. But yeah, the Suits episode made its way into our modern storyline when the commercial started playing. Ironically enough, there was also a progressive commercial yes. that was not meant, because I've seen that commercial before, it's purposely meant to be vintage. But I don't know if they had particularly selected it to run in that block or if it was just by coincidence. Either way, it's hysterical. Well, what do you make? So I want to ask you just a few things about this sequence, and I want to get your opinion on a few things that stood out to me. So first and foremost, you mentioned that Mrs. Alderson, Mrs. Robot, if you will, and I will, was being very violent to Darlene throughout. We have seen her in the past burning a cigarette on young Elliot, slamming his hand down, doing some of the same things that she's doing to Darlene in this uh, sitcom episode, which, by the way, clocking it around 19 minutes i mean you add one or two more minutes and that is a full-length sitcom with commercials at this point in this day and age so i'm not i'm thinking you say it's a little long i i understand where that's coming from we're almost to the point where it is essentially a feature length of film for what we're getting on commercials and tv nowadays like a hacked up episode of seinfeld is not running more than 21 or so minutes uh, in this day and age so we're we're very much right against a full sitcom episode within the context of mr robot but you've got the stuff with Mrs. Robot and Darlene. Did you make anything or is there any significance to you out of the fact that Darlene was unconscious throughout a lot of this? Yeah. I mean, again, we don't see, we haven't seen too many flashbacks of young Elliot, right? Obviously the season opener was a big one. We have the one after the Mr. Robot first reveal in season one of him going to his dad in his shop. And we'll obviously have the one at the very end, but there's very, there's a lot of holes that are left in the Alderson's ch siblings' childhood. From cigarette burn holes. Cigarette burn holes. Yes, exactly. That are not going to be uh, patched up anytime soon. Yes. But this might have been at least a little bit of insight into it. I think, again, one of the reasons why this sequence might have been a lot deeper than people initially realized is I think we were getting a lot of hints, not only to that, but to other inner psychologies of Elliot. I'm thinking also, uh, not to segue too much into Angela's part in this whole thing, but I mean, Mr. and Mrs. Robot come into the gas station and mace Angela and affirm to Elliot that she's not his friend anymore, which again, might have been in direct response to the conversation the two of them had last episode. But as you said, again, Mr. Robot is a manifestation of Elliot. At least part of him has to be kind of feeling she's the enemy now that she's working for E-Corp. Yeah. This, this is the first time we've really seen, as you said, Mrs. Robot. And again, 
going back to that biased narrator perspective, we are seeing her from a very subjective point of view. But that being said, uh, she seems rather aloof. She seems rather abusive. But hey, at least she got Darlene a Game Boy, so she can't be a total devil. Yeah, and she's a she's a big cigarette smoker. She's trying to watch her figure. I think the stuff you're pointing out with Angela is very important because we left last episode with Elliot and Angela in a, in a very tender moment, perhaps their most tender moment of the entire series, where she basically says, I could be a friend. I could help you. And he was being very honest with her when he said, my dead father is standing right behind you. Like he told her exactly what was happening. And she, her reaction to that wasn't to say, wow, you're in that job. I'll see you later. It was to say, like, I don't know how I could help you, but I could be a friend. I'm taking care of your fish. I'm making it fat. But, yeah, we're there. And there has been this tease of the Elliot and Angela will they or won't. They, they, they leaned much harder into that in the pilot and in the early part of season one where Elliot had a crush on Angela. We've gotten far away from that. But I thought with last episode's scene with Elliot and Angela that we'd been closer together between the two of them, that they were maybe closer as friends than we'd ever seen them on the show. And yet in Elliot's perfect little world, what's happening? Angela is getting maced. So I, I, and then they're saying the lines I think are pretty key. They're basically saying, Hey, she's not your friend anymore. There's plenty of fish in the sea. You need to move on. Like she works for them now and on and on and on. Uh, And as a matter of fact, Angela says, Elliot, stop him or I'm going to call the police. Do you read, Mike, anything into this? Like Elliot is subconsciously worried about Angela involving the FBI. And do you think that is actually where we're headed after this episode? Yeah, well, as I said, leaving the Angela FBI stuff in the middle obviously opens up a lot of possibilities moving forward. But I think it reflects on the fact that this entire Darlene Angela thing is going on without Elliot's knowledge. I mean, I, I think I remember last episode or maybe a couple episodes ago when Darlene was trying to get Angela involved. She didn't want to tell Elliot because... She feared that if she did, Elliot would would intervene and prevent her from getting involved in this whole thing, which Darlene, thinking about the entire mission, needs her support in. And so this is, again, going back to Elliot kind of being left in the dark about certain things, kind of being as a servant to multiple masters in a way where – he doesn't exactly he's, – he's, he's a little naive about Angela's role here. Even though he does consider her the enemy, he thinks that now she's sort of a cog in E-Corp's machine. Had he known exactly what she's doing, I don't think she'd be getting the mace in this scenario. Well, it does feel to me, though, like that deep down, some part of Elliot is worried about this. Some part of Elliot doesn't understand why she's gone to work for Evil Corp. It's a laugh line in this sitcom. It is, hey, but at least it, it sort of makes up for the fact that they killed my mom. Uh, but it, I don't think Elliot gets it on some level. And it, what we've talked about a lot in this podcast is that Elliot, Angela, and Darlene all have the same backstory. They all have the same setup. They really have the same inciting incident. The the origin of, of all three of the characters is the same. Now, where they've taken that origin story is very different. Some of them respond, respond to the toxic spill and become Ninja Turtles, if you will, and some become Daredevil, uh, and some are, are just victims. And it's it's really fascinating because Elliot, I think, doesn't really get why Angela is going about it a different way. She may, in fact, have the same goals. We see her somewhat pursuing these goals, although from a self-centered perspective in this episode, of course. But she may have the same goals in terms of taking Evil Corp down that Elliot does. But she is very much pursuing them differently. And I think part of Elliot doesn't get that and sees that as a cop-out or a sell-out. And we're seeing that manifested in this sitcom dream, this happy world. I don't understand, though, getting back to this, I don't understand why... 
Darlene is unconscious throughout. And I think it's some of what you just touched on, the fact that there's stuff going on in the world through Darlene that Elliot just doesn't know about, that, that it's the Angela and Darlene and the FBI that Elliot's really in the dark on a little bit, that he maybe has signed off on, but he doesn't understand the specifics of everything that's happening. It's happening in the background. I do think some of it is that Elliot feels a little alone in terms of the misery that he in particular suffered as a mm-hmm. result of what happened with his dad. It isn't that he had a sister who they could play together and they could go run off and hide in the same places and do all these things. That was a, a great bonding thing between the two of them. But she wasn't there for the scene with the $20 and Pulp Fiction. She wasn't there for this scene in the car when Mr. Robot first reveals that he's sick and Elliot creates the name Mr. Robot. She wasn't there for a lot of these key elements of Elliot's life. Uh, she was not, for whatever reason, she just wasn't present. And that, I think, is represented by her not really being present completely in this dream world. It's almost like Elliot, in his happy world, Darlene is unconscious to all the suffering. She's unconscious to everything that's happening. She is in her own dream world. She, in fact, wakes up at one point and says, I had the weirdest dream that mom hit me. And then she hits her again and knocks her out again. And so it's like in, in Elliot's dream world, Darlene is just, she's in her own dream world. She's unconscious to the darkness, the problems that Elliot is experiencing, whether it's with his parents or whether it's with the baggage that Tyrell represents. In Elliot's perfect little dream world that he's creating for safety here, Darlene is, is unconscious. She's not present for it. And I think that that's, that's pretty interesting as well, considering that is not the case in the real world. She is not only conscious, but she's more on the slab than Elliot at this point for the continued actions of F society. She's the one putting the wig on. She's the one dressing like Lisbeth Salander from the girl with the dragon tattoo <laughs> and going on capers. She's the one who is who's life hacking hotel entrances so yeah she's the one who's really out there and living it while elliot's the one who's actually unconscious so i do think there's a fascinating dichotomy there and i mm-hmm. thought that was that was one of my favorite things that was in play uh, in this sequence what do you make of the fact that it's alf that elliot has any kind of in, in interaction with an alien life form literally what alf stands for and that alf is sort of the deus ex you know mocking alf uh that comes in and <laughs> runs over gideon uh what do you make of Alf's involvement in this, if anything, yeah, I, I do want. I'd want to try to take a deep dive into it, but really, I'm just assuming that Sam Esmail was like, you know, it'd be fun if we got Alf to do it, and then they ended up contacting the creator of the show and the actor, and they were able to actually get him. So, I mean, I would rather have seen Alf than Jaleel White at this point, or any <laughs> other, you know. 80s, Wait, early 90s magnet. You're telling me that if Gideon got run over, that did I do that? Wouldn't be appropriate. I'd say let's put a cherry on it. If he gets out of his car and does the Urkel on top of Gideon's dead body, that uh, might win uh, it uh, over uh, for uh, me. Urkel? The Urkel dance? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. That would be unfortunate, I think. No, actually, actually, maybe Urkel would do well on his cameo because you could play up Stefan Urkel is like the Mr. Robot of Family Matters. Yeah, there's a lot. There's dual identities going on and all these things. I I think it's fascinating. Alpha is always a show that I loved, but there was a it was a particular place in time. It was right after that sort of Cold War paranoia was really starting to be put to bed. And we had this alien life form who everybody was hiding and he represented something that needed to be hidden from the world, covered up. This thing that nobody could see 
see and nobody could know was real and that for all we know was Willie's own manifestation of something crazy and that his kids all just put up with. But in reality, there was, there's just this really cool alien life form thing about Alf. Hard to understand. His origins don't make sense. It doesn't make sense that he ends up in this suburban world with this family. And I think to Elliot, he represents the sort of unknown, the alien, and the fact that he is the one that runs over Gideon here. By the way, I won the death draft again. Take that, Josh. Does, does, does that count? If he gets killed again, you get oh, yeah. double the points? It's called a redraft, Mike, and I won again. So this is happening. I won the redraft. I won the death redraft. That, that is done. So Gideon dies again, run over, as I said, by the deus ex mocking Alf. Uh, and Alf is, is sort of this alien force. If anything, to me, that may have tipped off the fact that it wasn't actually Elliot who set the wheels in motion to kill Gideon in, in the yeah. actual world. That this is more representative of an Elliot's subconscious. Look, in Elliot's subconscious, Mr. Robot fully responsible for putting Tyrell in the trunk. That's Mr. Robot's literal baggage as he describes it throughout the episode. However, in the case of Gideon dying, uh, Elliot has no real responsibility. It's this alien intervening force that comes in and runs him over to save, to bail him out of that situation. So I do think that if anything, that shows that even in Elliot's subconscious, it's an alien force that took out Gideon, not something that he's carrying around his own guilt about. Elliot's guilty that it happened, but not feeling like he's personally responsible. I can't wait for the upcoming Christmas song Gideon got run over by a Mel Mackian. <laughs> yeah, that, that's going to be a hit. Uh, you may, yeah, like, yeah, that as for me and Grandma, we believe. Like it absolutely could be the case. As, like, as for me and Edward, we believe. <laughs> yes, we, I want to believe at least. And but I'll, yeah, it was. It was and just speaking towards a, a separate from the analytical perspective. I mean. Alf's back in dream form, and that was super fun to see. I also think from sort of a meta perspective, if you could pick one of the 80s, 90s elements that would really stand out, I would assume an alien puppet is right up there. I feel like if you do make an actor kind of appear in a cameo, that's been done before. But to have Alf actually break into it and really makes you realize, if you didn't think this was a... a uh, you know, uh, an out there reality beforehand. Now we have a puppet in our midst and he's just running people over. He's hitting and running without any, you know, with, with, without any sort of course of, uh, of punishment. So having Alf in there is almost a game changer in a way, but the game is so convoluted at this point that it, it's all, it's all shot to hell. Yeah. It's been forever since that poor cop passed Mike. I'm sorry, it's been 12 seconds. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it is a game changer that ALF is involved, that we have an alien puppet, uh, alien puppet showing up. But I think it's totally appropriate. I, I pivot back to what you were saying about the Vulture interview with Sam Esmail. We'll link that, uh, as well as an interview Sam Esmail did with the New York Times where he talked about ALF's involvement here. It is something they pitch, they talk to the creator of ALF. According to his interview with the New York Times, Sam Esmail said that the creator was not a fan of the show. However, uh, he apparently golfed with a bunch of guys who were were fans of the show he started to watch the show and then signed off on the inclusion so al uh, the guy paul fusco who is the, the the guy the voice of alf the creator of alf uh he ultimately was uh, desiring to be involved once they pitched this to him so that was all great i love having alf involved it is it's just so weird of course but it, it is so in keeping with what elliot has done but as i said i think the really if you want to talk about from a confirmation standpoint we talked a ton last podcast about how the, the, just the lighting in the scene where Elliot is doing the FBI hacking at the beginning shows that Elliot is 
capable of controlling what we see on the screen and controlling the way the world looks to us, the viewers, this is just a hard right turn into that. And foolproof, I think, that there is no foolproof way to show that that world that Elliot may be creating with regard to living with his mom isn't fake. I think we are going to have the curtain pulled back on that at some point. And I think this only confirms that what we're seeing on the screen as viewers through Elliot's world, Elliot's capable of creating a world that not only is shot in four by three and has saxophone soundtracks, but includes Alf and other characters uh, from the outside world at large. So this is just confirmation to me that what we're seeing through Elliot's eyes in the, let's say, the proper timeline of this season may not be as it seems. And we're going to, I think, revisit that at some point and realize mm-hmm. that there was something going on all along with the creation of that world. And again, my theory has always been from the jump that Elliot telling us after he's talked to Krista that he doesn't trust us yet. He doesn't trust us to let us in on everything is, is shows that the world that we're getting is is essentially a creation that is supposed to be hidden, hiding the fact from his imaginary friend of what's really going on, hiding from us what his true reality is. So I do think that this confirms that Elliot is so capable of pulling the wool over our eyes to the point where he's got his own theme song, Mike. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the lyrics from that theme song because I think they play into this as well. It's a great theme song. It was actually commissioned specifically for the show, of course. And it was written, (laughs) believe it or not, it was written by the duet, the guys who wrote the theme from Full House, from Family Matters, from several other shows in the 80s. Sam Asmail said, look, we want want you to write our theme song. Uh, They worked with them. They pitched them lines back and forth. uh, And they came up with this theme song. So here we are with the the actual words of this theme song. Mike, do you have those handy? If not, I do. Yes, uh, so I believe the lyrics to said theme song read, Used to be you could trust in the story, vilify the villains, and trust in the heroes. Used to be that way, Mike. Used to be. You could believe in the guts and the glory, ways those were the better days. Where did those times go? When the shimmering sky turns cold and gray, searching for that spark of light, just close your eyes and say the word. Everything's going to be all right, which is more than a word, but you know they, they might have done this on a short amount of time. Yeah, so well, no, but that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> and then we get into the title of the song. Imagine a world gone insane. There we go. Pic- picture yourself high above. Imagine yourself in a world numb with pain, where crazies believing that twisted love deep in your heart stays alive. Stand up tall, and surely you'll survive. Imagine a world gone insane. Let your mind just drift away. Yeah, perfect. I mean, it's just so perfectly on point with everything that Elliot is doing, imagining the world gone insane, letting his mind just drifting away, picturing himself high above, uh, a world numbed with pain, where crazy's believing the twisted love deep in your heart stays alive. Uh, all these things are, are Elliot's really there there are a lot of what's going on with Elliot throughout the course of this series i think it's a great theme song uh it's it's great because it it hits the 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 little the, just the contrivance or the convention if you will of the sitcom that was used in the first 19 minutes used to be you could trust in the story it used to be you could vilify the villains and trust in the heroes you could believe in the guts and the glory uh ways and those were better days where did those times go that's the first that's the first 19 minutes here it's yeah. way, the way TV used to be. And as you said, Sam Esmail talked about how part of the greatness of those sitcoms, if there is greatness about them, which I think we could hey. all acknowledge. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, no, we could all acknowledge is that whatever problems that families had, they could address them and wrap them up in these short little 23-minute bursts. And by the end of the episode, you knew things would always be all right, no matter what it was. So this is definitely not the world of Mr. Robot. But when Elliot wants to close his eyes and go to his happy place, that's the sort of thing he thinks of. But Elliot's a little too warped to think of a very pure version of that. And you're right, as you, as you noted, right away, we've got jokes, Darlene saying, kill me now, the cancer cough, you know, it sounds like it's acting up, looks like it too. In the theme song itself, while all these uh, upwardly mobile aspirational lyrics are playing, we see Angela crying at her mother's coffin side, Mike. Oh, boy, this was like right in my wheelhouse of really <laughs> dark stuff set to a tonally happy music. Yeah, uh, Darlene is kissing Cisco in the very directly too many cooks window kind of call out that's happening there. Uh, Gideon gives a great, as you noted, while he's reading about his own death, he gives a great sitcom-y too many cooks reaction. Uh, this is very much in response response that if you haven't seen too many cooks stop what you're doing hit pause in this podcast go to youtube look up too many cooks watch that come back and if you're back i'm really sorry for that uh, i hope snarf, you i hope you went to therapy right after watching the too many cooks video yeah snarf lives on in all of our hearts uh, r.i.p snarf snarf may never die so yeah that is what's happening and yeah there's definitely a too many cooks connection there there but even in elliot's dream world even in this perfect world he's created it, he can't keep the darkness from creeping in, uh, and he can't keep these things from for his subconscious from being represented, whether it's the guilt over Tyrell, whether it's the alien forces that are responding to Gideon, uh, whether it's everything that's happening with Angela where he's maybe not sure he trusts her, or whether it's that he prefers Darlene be kind of dark and unconscious to what's happening. Uh, he can't keep that from creeping in. Anything else, Mike, about this first landmark 20 minutes of Mr. Robot here? So a, a few things. First, going back to the theme song briefly, it is eerily reminiscent to specifically the Full House theme song. And I know that it utilizes kind of a knockoff on the Full House font to read Mr. Robot. But as you said, the first few lyrics to this theme song are basically synonyms for whatever happened to predictability in a yeah. way. where Milkman, the Paperboy, and Evening TV. So we might, we might be going into a theory where Full House is in a shared universe with Mr. Robot where it's all sort of addressing maybe the the theme song of Full House was almost a harbinger of doom of what was going to happen oh during the 5-9 hack. Mike, uh, I, cut it out. <laughs> oh, boy. Hope, I hope the Dark Army has mercy on me, if that's the truth. That's the <laughs> yeah. truth there. Same, uh, same, same, same duo. Bennett Salve and Jesse Frederick wrote both those songs. So maybe they're, they're just... They're, they're the musical Nostradamus of our modern world. Borrow from the best people, yeah. So, let's, so what else, Mike? What else about um, this intro? I do have to point out, we've had some Christian Slater references throughout season two. One of the first lines of this episode is Darlene asking Elliot, what's your damage? Which is one of the most popular lines from the movie Heathers. And... I also really like the movie Heathers, which one of the reasons why I really enjoy Mr. Robot as well is that at least in the beginning, the character of Mr. Robot was basically like a grown-up version of the JD character, Christian Slater's anarchical character from Heathers. I'm trying to think if there was anything else. We could talk a little bit about the commercials as well. Uh, they reminded me a little bit, Antonio, you and I also covered the last season of Parks and Recreation here on Post Show Recaps, which set their last season in the year 2017. And I remember you and I talked about fake commercials that were used there as well. And even though they were used in a future sense to sort of poke fun at what might come in the current state of our world and what that may inform, here we're doing the exact opposite. We're looking back, we're looking back ironically at the, the E-Corp ad when they say the future is just a click away and they're emphasizing their online banking. They say, we're still on your side. We may get knocked down. 
down, but we're never going to get knocked out. They're that doing one, a lot of tub thumping there. That one was yeah, it's a, yeah, Chumba Wumba. That was really interesting to me. That one because the the internet one was of a place in time. It wasn't an anachronism in that it was presented as though it was like an early AOL commercial. Like you could be on the internet within minutes, Mike. So that was very much presented of the place in time, as was the Bud Light commercial that they, they selected with the dogs on the bar that we're on your side and we'll get back up. We'll always be behind you. That to me read more like a commercial that would be airing in the post five, nine hack world uh, where bad things have happened to E Corp and they're airing ads to show you that, They've been stable throughout history, and that even though everything that has happened in all those times, Evil Corp has been there. So I thought that that was very interesting, that that commercial read more like it was playing in modern times and not the times that would have been set for for Mr. Robot, for the sitcom. Yeah, that is true. Speaking towards that whole hack in general, it is interesting to me that... We haven't seen outside of the premiere and the Philip Price stuff this episode a little bit. We haven't seen too much insight as to the cleanup that Ecor is trying to do after the 5-9 hack. Because I think the one time that they really tried to do something, which was the whole Scott Knowles $5.9 billion fiasco, ended up lighting up, literally immolating in their faces. And we haven't really seen too much of as much of a big tyrant as this company was in the first season. You would think that they'd be doing a lot more PR work to really clean up this idea that all these people's money and all of their assets had just gotten lost and their safety has really been fractured. And so this is sort of that commercial is actually sort of an example of what I'd be interested to see more of on Mr. Robot is as much as over the top as the E-Core people may be. I do kind of want to see how they're responding to what F Society has been doing to them. And maybe we'll get that now that it seems that F Society has made their way into the FBI and literally into the infrastructure of E Corp. But I feel like it's something that we've been missing in these past six episodes. Yeah, there's there's a lot that's going on in the background, and we'll talk about that when we get to the Philip Price scene from this from this episode. But E Corp seems to have an agenda, and that agenda is at odds with the the Dark Army or the Chinese agenda. And that agenda is not necessarily playing out very well. Well, currently in terms of public relations and the recovery from the five nine hack has not happened stores are going out of business bad things are happening so i thought that this commercial really played into that i thought that that was really interesting this is not the first time that uh mr robot has aired e-corp commercials i should also add i think these were for e-corp and not evil corp is that right yeah, I don't think actually after season one, we I know the first episodes of season one were really big into us reading into Elliot's perspective and him saying he imagines E-Corp as Evil Corp from now on, which led to the really fun device of everyone in their daily lives calling it Evil Corp. But I don't think we've heard the term Evil Corp for a while now. Yeah, so this is, I mean, this is just more we're on your side and not, not Evil Corp, even though it's theoretically being presented in a commercial, in a subconscious manifestation in Elliot's world. So maybe in Elliot's happy place, that's what he thinks about when he thinks about E Corp. Uh, more innocent times when they represented how he got online, they weren't evil. Uh, more innocent times when he saw them as a stable force in the world and not a destructive one. You can contrast that to how he views them now, evil, evil, evil. So maybe that's part of it as well. Uh, 
Uh, I really like the the way Mr. Robot, we talk about the title cards a ton in this podcast. It was the first words in the credit sequence over the nuclear towers, presumably the factory in Washington Township, uh, where the spill occurred that caused all the cancer that led to this all falling apart as we saw it, as we've seen it play out. So I thought that that was a great tie-in. Also kind of a tie-in to the Simpsons Micah show, I know, is near and dear to your heart with the Springfield yeah. nuclear power plant. So Yeah, and, and, L- and L- one of Elliot's least favorite characters, which I'm assuming is Mr. Burns. They allude to his yes. carelessness, and it basically has to be either Mr. Burns or Homer. And I think as jerk-ass as Homer Simpson gets in the later seasons, I think Mr. Burns would probably be the character that a young child would dislike more. Oh, for sure. I think that there's no doubt that's a, that's a Montgomery Burns-esque character. That, that Mr. Robot is referencing in that later scene in the car. So, yeah, I really like that about this. You could also make comparisons, I think, to I Love Mallory, which is a weird interlude in the film Natural Born Killers. I don't want to spoil too much about that movie, but there is a, a sitcom-y interlude. Uh, I Love Lucy-esque, Honeymooners-esque interlude in that it's much darker than even this, as that occurs in that movie, which is, of course, darker than the show Mr. Robot. Uh, but there's, there's definitely that as well, a, a movie that has looked back and made a, a sitcom kind of deviation in the middle of the film. So there's that for sure in this as well. Anything else about the intro, Mike? So I feel like since this is the only time we really talk about Tyrell this episode, and this is the first time we physically see Tyrell this season outside of Elliot's basket case dream a couple episodes ago, I do feel like we need to bring him up a little bit. Scott French asked us, does Tyrell's role in the sitcom Mr. Robot a nod to Elliot having killed him or just Elliot's fear that he killed him? And you talked a little bit ago about what you think Gideon's death represented in that fantasy sequence of how the fact that Elliot wasn't outright responsible for him getting run over means that Elliot really wasn't involved in his assassination at the end of the day. With Mr. Robot showing that Tyrell Wellick is in the trunk, and not only that, that he ends up killing him by bludgeoning him to death with a tire iron, do you think the mystery of where Tyrell Wellick is is getting filled in a little bit more? I, I mean, it's it's weird because we, we we know that Joanna got the call last episode, and we seem to believe that Tyrell maybe is in New York City. We speculated that maybe he's even living in Elliot's apartment. We got feedback about that, that he couldn't have called from Elliot's apartment because he was right there on Joanna Street. Uh, that's obvious. He would have called from a cell phone, but he still could be living in Elliot's apartment, which is what I think we were suggesting. I don't know that we've gotten any confirmation that that's not the case. He's alive in the trunk as the sitcom starts, Mr. Robot probably kills him with that tire iron when uh, Tyrell ch- chimes in about, you know, he, 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 he makes the mistake, I think, after he's run away and run into the green screen and piped up. He makes the mistake of kind of chiming in as Mr. Robot is talking to Elliot, which is a dumb mistake to make, uh, and he gets beaten down uh, by the tire iron. He says, sometimes they help you get away with murder, uh, and then he just gets hit with a tire iron and there's blood everywhere. So I, he, he may have gotten killed in that trunk in the course of this sitcom, he, but he wasn't dead at the beginning of it. So it seemed more like, in Elliot's view, as far as he knows, Mr. Robot has just kidnapped Tyrell. He's, he's put tape on his mouth, tied him up, and he's, he's taking him somewhere 
but not that he's killed him. But then by the end, he has hit him with that tire iron. So I don't, I don't think, I mean, I personally don't think Tyrell is dead. A little inside baseball here would be that Martin, uh, what the, the character who plays Tyrell, the actor Martin who plays Tyrell. Martin Whale or whatever. Yeah, his, yeah however you want to pronounce the name. name. Yeah, I'll let you butcher it. Uh, that's fine. Uh, he is a series regular. He's getting paid and getting the kind of rates that you would get as a series regular, not as a guest star. That could be to just protect the fact that he's been killed and it's a secret they wanted to drag out throughout the course of the whole season. However, that's a really expensive cover-up, if you ask me. So <laughs> I think he's being paid as a series regular because he's going to be used as a series regular when he comes back into the story. He's just not back yet. And so I think this is more meant to represent, in response to Scott's question, I think this is more meant to represent the fact that Elliot still isn't 100% sure what's happened. He is guilty. He thinks Mr. Robot may have killed him, but he's not 100% sure about what has happened. And he sees it as baggage and that it's something that has to be dealt with before they can move on and enjoy their vacation. So yeah. that to me is, is the main element of that. Uh, Dave Baker asked, <laughs> based on Alf's appearance, can we blame evil Corp for all the bad sitcoms of the past 30 years? Uh, and, and in, in line with that, Dominic asked, is it possible? Wellick's phone call sounded distorted because he was calling from Melmac. So is there some, is there some connection between Wellick and Alf, Mike, that we need to explore here? As much as I lauded the, the fantasy and, and genre bending elements of this show, if we go into the space, travel realm i i don't know how i'm gonna feel about that i know we've talked about alternate universes throughout the course of these podcasts but i don't know if if this ends with elliot going to houston and hacking a rocket ship we might have gone one step too far yeah we we will have gone one step too far let me let me correct you there we will have gone one step too far no might have to it uh chris even Uh, one one step too far one giant leap for mankind too far (laughs) exactly to continue the uh the space metaphor yes chris eden had just tweeted at me the hashtag Hashtag Berenstain. So the multiple universes theory, if you will, uh, is still in play here. This only sort of, I think, served to underscore the fact that not everything is as it seems, especially when it's perceived through Elliot's eyes, and mm-hmm. that there are different worlds that may be in play here. Uh, I want to move on, unless you've got anything else about the intro, I want to move on to the central master-slave theme of the episode, uh, which really is not in play in the intro that much, in that Elliot, Elliot's, if he has a, if Mr. Robot is Elliot's master, he has actually given him respite and allowed him to be taken away and protected him. Um, he hasn't forced him to do anything. He's essentially let him be a passenger in a car that's going in a certain direction, which is what Elliot talks about in the voiceover later. But that is directly contrasted to what's honestly happening in the real world, which is that all of this was covering up the pain that Elliot was experiencing from the beatdown, mm-hmm. from everything that was happening. And Elliot is hospitalized in some sort of, I don't know, the worst hospital this side of Gotham City, Mike. I don't know what's going yeah. on in this hospital. but I, I, don't know. I don't know why they're playing ALF reruns in the year 2015. Because it it's a like- great show. Oh, duh. It is, but I, I can't find it on my cable anytime soon. I find way too many Friends reruns than I do Alf reruns. Way too many. One rerun of Friends is too many, but that's just my two cents. Uh, E-Meister, give me four. Yeah, so Alf is on the TV. But yeah, more importantly, Ray is in the room. Uh, when Elliot wakes up, he's really struggling to breathe. He's beat up bad. And Ray starts telling the story about his dog, Maxine. And he says she got a cough. I uh, took her to the vet. The vet said maybe she danced with the wrong mosquito, got some heartworm. 
Before she got sick, she was like her own operator. But when she got sick, she really needed human assistance. I put her in a basement room. Her only roommate was a hot water heater. And it was in that basement room she realized at that point for the first time that she was truly reliant on human beings to give her everything. That she was essentially a slave to these humans that were keeping her. And he points out that he wasn't sure if it was the the parasites or that realization that would have killed her first. And that is – it's fascinating because – that he, he, that's all that there is of Ray in this episode. He gives a speech about his dog and talks about how his dog was basically dying and that his dog realized in, in death that his dog was reliant on other human beings and that that realization was crushing in and of itself. That's, as I pointed out, exactly what happens to Elliot in this episode. He ends up maybe even in that same basement. There's a water heater in the corner, and he's totally reliant on what's happening with Ray. I'm just wondering, Mike, at this point, I thought thought all Ray needed to do, uh, or all Elliot, all Ray needed Elliot for was to migrate this website. Do you think there's a bigger purpose in play with Ray here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we'd be foolish not to assume that Ray not only picked Elliot because of his ability to migrate a website, but because of maybe his larger connections. And I know there have been some theories out there of who necessarily is Ray's boss. You know, is he working for the Dark Army? Is he working for some third party like Fernando Vera, for example. And that that's still unknown, but I definitely think Ray knows a lot more than he's giving off. This story is super interesting. It is very on the nose, or I guess on the snout in the case of a dog in terms of the wow. master-slave comparison. I mean, that's the title of this episode. And there are so many different master-slave occurrings in popular media and, and culture outside of the obviously obvious american allegory one thing that really came to mind uh were two characters from the pro from the play waiting for godot named pozo and lucky uh one is a master and one is a slave and in the first act or the first half of the play they come out and there's a very clear master slave relationship lucky is on a leash uh and pozo basically does all the gloating and speaking until lucky goes into this big monologue as ordered then the tables turn in the second half where Lucky becomes the master and Pozzo's the slave. But now Pozzo is blind and Lucky is deaf. And it's sort of – there's obviously a lot that you can buy into with that, that power dynamic. But it speaks very interestingly to this idea of the master-slave relationship and whether those power dynamics can be subverted. Right now, Elliot is a slave to many masters. He's a slave to Mr. Robot. He's a slave in a way to F society now that Darlene has kind of stepped up and taken over. He's a slave to Ray now, now that Ray has kind of physically bullied him. He might be a slave to a larger piece of a larger conspiracy, as you've been talking about on the podcast beforehand. But there might be a chance for Elliot to subvert this slave-master relationship later on. And if he does, will he end up either blind or deaf as a result? Will he not come out of it unharmed i think is a very interesting question i think that's the second time we've had a waiting for Godobot reference on our podcast throughout the course of this mr robot uh rewatch and mr robot podcast the post show recap so uh, i'm i'm in on that i understand exactly what you're saying i think the master slave thing with elliot is fascinating because as you're pointing out there are all those connections but there's a there's a possibility for him to subvert it i think we thought he was the one in control it's crazy because we ended season one thinking that maybe elliot as mr robot 
was the bigger, the prime mover, the bigger machinator of everything that was going on with Tyrell. And that by the end of maybe episode three or four, we're starting to think that maybe Elliot was a pawn in a bigger game of chess between White Rose and Philip Price, and that maybe Elliot was exploited. We talked about that a lot on last episode. So all that's going on. We only have really, counting, not counting the first the first big thing that happens in this episode, the most extended Elliot voiceover in this episode is near the end. And his voiceover basically is masters. We all have them. Every relationship is a power struggle. Some of us need to be controlled once in a while. The best course of action is just to ride shotgun, stare at the road ahead and hope it leads you somewhere to go. I hope it leads somewhere you want to go. And so that's fascinating because he's doing that in his little dream uh, in the sitcom. He's, Riding in the back seat, just staring at the road ahead, hoping it's going to lead somewhere he wants to go, being reassured by Mr. Robot the whole time that it will, and being wigged out by the whole experience and being concerned it won't lead somewhere that he wants to go. And then by the end, we see the final scene is that him literally riding shotgun with his dad uh, and uh, hearing the story about how his dad got sick for the first time. And somewhere he wants to go in that case is the store, Mr. Robot, where he's been asked to name the store. And so there, there's Elliot literally riding shotgun uh, and, and staring at the road ahead in this episode. But it's also a lot of power struggles that are going on. And that he says some of us need to be controlled. And it's not just Elliot that's in the master-slave situation. There's also the question of who's manipulating whom with regard to Angela, whether it's with E-Corp or with the F-Society group or the Dark Army. There's Cisco and Darlene, which we'll get into. So there are a lot of these relationships that one of them is the master and one of them is the slave, and we won't exactly know how it's all going to play out. I also wouldn't be surprised, Mike, you mentioned waiting for Godot and the two characters therein. I know that waiting for I know that this play, No Exit, is a three character, uh, three character thing that goes on. Uh, but I I wouldn't be surprised if we have a lot of Mr. Robot and Elliot being forced in this room that they're locked in uh, with no real escape at their hands uh, to come to grips with their relationship with each other. And maybe we're going to see that next episode, some, some mm-hmm. real clarity on that. And that would be more of a no exit kind of scenario. Yeah. Uh, Cause right now it is a dead end uh, that they're in. Uh, they're really just in, in a bad way. And Elliot is falling into his father's arms saying, thank you. Uh, and that's not Elliot saying you win or you're in control. It's Elliot saying, I'm now realizing or acknowledging that not everything you want to do to me is harm and that you actually want to protect me and be good for me. And maybe with that grain of understanding and maybe if that's truly where the relationship lies, they can make some progress on the bee elephant in the room, as I said, between the two of them. But I do think that there's got to be something bigger that's going on between Elliot and Ray, and that Ray might be tied into the larger sto- larger story, as you are observing. Uh, there are theories out there, of course, and that, that maybe Elliot is tied into the larger story, or Ray is tied into the larger story of what's happening with the Dark Army, theoretically, or the- I'm sure, I'm sorry, thematically. What's happening there, of course, is that Ray has some website where he wants to use alternative currency like Bitcoin uh, and change the marketplace, change the way the world works, allow you to buy contraband goods and horrible things from Eastern Europe directly, anonymously online using Bitcoins instead of going through a company like Evil Corp and using their banks and using their modes of transactions and all of that. So Ray sort of represents that, that new economy and – there is that that element of what's going on with Philip Price and 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 White Rose and the, the Dark Army. 
that maybe the goal there is to change the way the U.S. economy operates. Maybe it's for China to take over. Maybe it's a Bitcoin thing. Uh, maybe the factory in that case is a Bitcoin factory, not a regular oh factory. Oh, my God. If this, if this show comes down to Bitcoins and having to explain to the audience what Bitcoins are, you might as well go to space. Yeah, that's true. I don't even understand it. Like, let's go Bitcoin mining, Mike. Look, we could play some Bitcoin Minecraft together. Uh, yeah, I don't know how that how exactly that's going to tie in. But the, the, the real upshot of this is we see that playing out in the background in this episode. We see four FBI agents being killed at a Beijing hotel is the top story on the news as Angela is training to, to get her hack on, as you will, while she's learning the scripts. They need her to essentially be a backup in case things go wrong. She's got to be ready to type some things. She's got to be ready to execute a few things. And she's draining for that. Trenton is saying, bad idea. She can't do it this quick. It's going to be a lot of heat because of these shootings of FBI agents. Mobley is saying, bad idea. She can't do it this quick. Uh, we're going to have some problems. Mobley explains the hack, which we really talked about last week. But what Angela is going to do, just to cover it again, is that Angela is going to go into the secure FBI floor at Evil Corp. Uh, the reason that she's going to be able to do that is because she's an Evil Corp employee. That's why she's the exploit. She gets in that secure floor. She places a device that essentially acts as a portable cell phone tower. It's called a fem to cell That's that black box that's in this episode. She'll plug that in. And what that will do is for every FBI agent that will connect their cell phone, it will connect to that little box instead of the actual cell tower. That box, Angela will plug it into the network router. And by doing so, Darlene can access the network and she can ultimately get into that fem to cell box through that network and she can access all of the FBI's emails and texts and everything through a backdoor. She can backdoor their way into this into their phones by installing without this. without any power of veto. They can backdoor someone. Yes, exactly. They, they will be a pawn. There'll be a pawn there. Uh, there'll be a backdoor nominee, uh, and hopefully everything will play out the way people. Hopefully Angela can help them flip the house, Mike, uh, before the end of the week. So that's what the well, goal your, your is. Your boy Ross Thomas doesn't like that. <laughs> yeah, Ross Thomas. So we're going to get into that because I can't wait to uh, I can't wait to hear what you have to say about Ross Thomas. Uh, what a weirdo. But uh, but yeah, how long how long were you in that bathroom, Angela? Uh, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Great pickup line, Ross. Grade A. Yeah, let me just tell you right away that I was focusing on how long you were in the bathroom. Uh, but yeah, this is because people love that. But yeah, this is the plan. The plan is that Angela is going to place this device. She's going to plug it into the network. Darlene is going to access the network, and, and she's going to get Angela's help to do that as well. The box will also help with that. But by but by connecting through to the network, then she can connect to that box, which is networked, and she can get all of the information off of their phones through the back door that way. That's the idea. Now, apparently Cisco is making the fem to cell box for – F Society. What I think F Society doesn't realize is that Cisco is still working with the Dark Army here. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, the Dark Army shouldn't be involved in this plan. Everybody's really scared of the Dark Army. We've sort of put this on the back burner, but uh, Mobley got – or not Mobley. Romero got killed. Gideon got killed. People are dying. The Dark Army may be responsible for this. Uh, people were killed in China. So they're they're pretty scary, the Dark Army. And yet Cisco is still working with them. Darlene says, we're still waiting on the box. Mobley says, I need it right away to put some stuff in it. And Darlene says, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll get it. We're still waiting for him to add some mods and change the antennas. When we show Cisco in the next scene in the library, 
Cisco is actually meeting with the Dark Army who is giving him the box. And Cisco has said mm-hmm. basically, like, I created this box. He, whoever he is, should have trusted me. But apparently he had to give the box to the Dark Army to get it cleared before he could give it to F Society. I don't think, Mike, that F Society knows about this. No, not at all. And I'd say that... I think we're working towards a larger outcome at the end of this season where it turns out the Dark Army is almost framing F Society. I think that this is going to kind of be Chekhov's router in a way where, yes, Angela tried to wipe her prints, and we'll talk about that, about whether she may be culpable even after the fact. But I think that the Dark Army is providing this in a way to... I don't know technology, but I'm sure there's a way that they can fire up something to assign personal responsibility to connect directly back to F Society so that E Corp and especially the FBI really have a stranglehold on them. And you said before that, you know, is this working towards a larger scheme of the Chinese taking over and having everything be Bitcoin operated? And again, as much as I don't want that to be an outcome, I do think the Dark Army is really the overlords of this entire scheme. They're kind of turning all these parties against each other so that they can be the ones to clear everyone out after everyone is weakened. I mean, I think, like you said, they're not, they're afraid of the Dark Army, but at the same time, I feel like they're not, because there is so much rampant and random violence going on in the world after 5-9, whether that be through F Society or through random fringe people acting like they're a part of F Society, or as the FBI tries to affirm to DDP, uh, a rogue insurgent group shot up, you know, Please. the FBI not in buying China. It. Not buying it. Exactly. Like, But I think that the world is so set on turning against each other and blaming so many other parties because, as Alf kind of puts, it, ironically enough, in that clip that Elliot sees on the TV in the hospital, democracy is dead in a way. The Dark Army is kind of for lack of a better term, being able to reside in the shadows, really pull the puppet strings on everything. At the end end of the day, their fingerprints are going to be wiped completely on this whole situation. Yeah, and I think the key element there is Mr. Zhang slash White Rose is this key player in both organizations, that in the Dark Army, uh, as White Rose, she's the leader, and in the Chinese government, in that organization, he is the minister of security. And that he has this key role and interaction with, we know, as we know, with Philip Price, where they do have some larger plan in play. We know for a fact that Mr. Zhang, Minister Zhang, a.k.a. White Rose, and Philip Price have some larger plan in play. We saw earlier this season the phone call between the two of them where White Rose essentially said like, he has this strategy where he's waiting on some woman. Uh, we thought at that time that it was probably Angela to come to play. That strategy is going to take six months. We are going to have to do our own thing. When he realized the FBI was investigating uh, the Dark Army and everything that happened with F Society, that's when White Rose sort of said, we have to do our own thing. White Rose is the leader of the Dark Army, also the Chinese uh, information or the minister of security in China. Same character, Mr. Zhang slash White Rose. And that is a key thing here because whether or not that's the he that Cisco refers to when Cisco gives that box or not, someone at the Dark Army could have easily modified that box because we have to recall that the Internet failed right away as soon as the box was hooked up to it. Now, you, you can tell me. If that was as a result of the box being plugged in, you could tell me that it wasn't. I would buy it either way, but I would really be – I would not be shocked at all if the Dark Army was looking out for themselves and had some larger goal in mind that didn't necessarily involve helping F Society cover their tracks. And you're right, especially if White Rose – 
has this thing where he's at odds with Philip Price, and he thinks Philip Price's strategy involves Angela. It would make a lot of sense to me for White Rose to try to take Angela out of the game and to speed the plow by recognizing, because they knew through their work with Cisco that Angela was vulnerable, that Angela was the one who installed the disc, that Angela had this great security issue that was exposed. She That was an exploit they could exploit. She's the one who installed the disc in season one that allowed the Dark Army to look into all safe, and that allowed ultimately them to speed the plow on the hack uh, by getting rid of the server and taking that away and doing all those things, um, that was all part and parcel to that. They they noticed the honeypot because of the hack where Darlene installed the CD. So they know about Angela, and they know that she's exploitable. They know what she did. And so they could easily you could easily foresee a circumstance where if they know that she's the key player in Price's plan, they would try to create a circumstance where F Society would use Angela to to get into the building and that Angela could in fact be the one that's culpable and that would take her off the board completely. If you look at it this like, this like a chess game and Angela is Philip Price's rook or a key piece, uh, they may be trying to get her off the board. And so that could be a key part of it. We'll get to the, the actual way that that scene plays out. But I think this scene with Cisco is meant to suggest that he's working both parties. And I don't mm-hmm. think that F Society knows about that. No. Um, they he's, think- he's, yeah, he's a, he's a servant to two masters. But as he realizes, as you often do in reality TV, if you try to, if you try to deal with both sides, you'll often end up getting burned or, in this case, cut or implanted, I guess. Yeah, really awful, horrific scene of torture oh where God. a syringe is stuck under a fingernail and then broken, the needle is broken off. Uh, so that is what happens to Cisco. While that's happening, the, the man who's torturing him says, you've forgotten where your loyalties lie. You are a foot soldier. Foot soldiers do one thing. They follow orders. And this is only, the guy was walking away. The guy handed Cisco the package. Cisco took it. He was a little upset. He gave a little bit of lip about how he should trust me next time. But the guy was walking away. As he was walking away, he did exactly what you're saying. He tried to serve too many masters. And he said, hey, these are my friends. You've got to give me something. Like, I want our employer to be happy, but I also want them to be safe. And that is not the right answer. Like, and we see Cisco limp in to deliver the box later. Uh, so he clearly got the message from the Dark Army and delivered the box. Whether or not something about that box is going to implicate F Society or Angela directly, or whether it was just set up to fail so that the, the greater level of involvement from Angela would be in play, or so that F Society's plan wouldn't work and they would see her on the floor planning the device, it remains to be seen. But that is that very clearly could be the case. The FBI playing a key role here, and it's playing it through DDP. We find out, we were sort of in a cliffhanger in last episode, whether she would live or not. We find out that not only did she live, but the FBI is recommending that she take a month off. Some very yeah. key, key information in this She's, scene, they, they, Yeah, they think she's suffering from DDPTSD. Yes, exactly. LOL. That ROTFL. Nice. Good job, Mike. Uh, yeah. So they think she's suffering from DDT, DDP, PTSD. Oh, boy, that's a mouthful. Um, so, yeah, that could be what's happening. They want her to take a month off. She says no. She doesn't want to take the month off. And then, Mike, she gets into some really interesting stuff here with regard to how she thinks the shootout played out. What's the nature of that disagreement she has with her boss? I would almost compare this to, and this is going to be a weird comparison, but DDP in this scenario is almost like Marge Gunderson from Fargo in a way, where I feel like we're in a very similar scenario where you have this one individual working for a law apprehension society that 
is very good at her job and seems to be the only one that's really buying into this one theory, going down this one darkened path, while everyone else is sort of blind to what's going on and saying, you know, you're shaking up. You need to go rest. You don't need to think about what happened. It was obviously a very traumatic situation. But DDP, and this is the reason why, in spite of interrupting people and being a little uh, socially awkward, is very, very good at her job, she clues in almost immediately to the fact that maybe the dark, this wasn't an insurgency, as you said before, that maybe the dark army did this as a tactic to turn the FBI away. One of the reasons why Angela has to go in right now to the 23rd floor is because the FBI is now moving out of E Corp and is going back to their home base. And so the dark army succeeded in their plan of scaring away the FBI of kind of in the metaphorical chess game, kind of taking away that piece, that very, very large piece for a little bit so that the other pieces are more conquerable. But DDP is going to be the thorn in the dark army side, I predict, in that she seems very hot on their trail. Yeah, she's very hot on their trail. And it isn't, I mean, there's a thorn in the side thing and, and there's a lot more to it than that, perhaps, because she notes, as you said, that the shooter shot themselves in the head. He erased his history is her, is her words, which I think is fascinating in a show about computer memory, especially. Um, she notes that they could have killed her and didn't, and their mission wasn't, was only to disrupt. So she's on to the fact that the Dark Army was there to disrupt the scene, was there not to necessarily kill them all, or specifically not to kill her, even though four agents did die, but that if it was some group that wanted a higher body count, there'd be a higher body count. This had to be a disruption mission. And what was the disruption about? And then we get right into the next scene, which is Price talking to presumably the Speaker of the House. And it doesn't sound like Paul Ryan. It sounds a little more like John Boehner to me. But Price is talking oh, to Oh, no. This... Alternate. Is this our Berenstain world that John Boehner is the Speaker of the House? Well, I, it may actually be at a time from when John Boehner was the Speaker of the House. So I don't know exactly J- how... July 2015. I don't know too much about government. So I'm not sure if John Boehner was, was in, in office back then. Yeah, I feel like that doesn't... I feel like that doesn't time out right. Uh, I feel like that that... I feel like he was he was... In the house till like this time last year or so, if I recall, was in the fall. So, yeah, it's probably supposed to be John Boehner, maybe. Um, But at any rate, that is uh, that is that is a conversation that Price is having, and uh, Price is really uh, interested in what's happening there. Uh, He's saying like, "Let's get the bailout money," and the speaker is saying, "Look, uh, we." We were going to borrow the money for the bailout from China, and we certainly can't borrow from China in this political climate, not after the shooting. So the bailout's off, and Price is really, really, really upset. He's been calling Minister Zhang. He's been calling White Rose on the phone, who won't take his call. Yeah, they've been ghosting him. Yeah, they've totally been ghosting him, the White Rose ghost. And uh, he says, keep calling him again and again and again. And the building is surrounded by protesters. We see the, the TV host that's talked about crisis actors and he, the TV host that has talked about the bigger conspiracy that we saw from the smart home in season one that was referenced by Ollie in the meeting with Angela is there in the background on the TV in Price's office. So my question is ultimately, is this, is this really what the goal was? We, we saw Philip Price tell Angela with regard to the Gavrilo Princip World War I kind of thing. We saw Philip Price say, like, one well-placed bullet can change history. What, and, and I'm wondering, were the bullets in question the bullets that were fired at that hotel last episode? And does China now really have the upper hand on Evil Corp and then in turn the U.S. economy? I completely think so. And it goes back to my idea that I think the Dark Army is really – 
the big bad here at the end of the day. They spent the first eight episodes of season one setting up a very intricate set of dominoes. Now that they got Elliot and Tyrell to execute that hack, the dominoes are now in motion. And I think, you know, it's not coincidental that because of this shootout that happened with the FBI, now the speaker does not want to request bailout money from China because he doesn't want to sour his reputation in front of the rest of the country. I think everything in this sequence is happening for a reason. I just think there's a very pertinent quote by Price here where he says, with enough passion, people will buy into anything. And even though he's speaking about his company, I feel like that's more so the rhetoric of F Society as well. I can't get my mind off of these fringe F Society cohorts, these people that are not necessarily instituting hacks, but they're running around with masks in the street and they're totally buying into the ideals that F Society is about and it sort of speaks towards how malleable the masses can be if they're rallying behind a cause that they believe in that might not necessarily be completely sound as the e-corp commercial said earlier on in the fantasy sequence there they want to make you believe that they're on your side and i think price is pointing out the transparency that can exist for people that make you believe they're on your side yeah and that's uh there's an interesting thing going on there because in that scene before this the FBI seemingly was on DDP's side when they said, you need time off. You need to take a month off. We're, we're on your side. We're looking out for your health. And she was saying, no, I, absolutely not. Like, I'm not going to believe that. And truly, his, uh, the, the pitch from her supervisor, I think his name, what is his name, Santiago? His, yeah. name, his, his pitch was not all that passionate or persuasive. He was basically suggesting it. He didn't seem to be very bowled over when she refused. So it, it does seem like that, that's going to be fine. She's going to keep working. Would you say that Santiago's reason was a little chilly? Uh, geographically speaking, I think you're onto something there, Mike. Uh, I I don't know. I think that that's possible. I I do think that, uh, and we're gonna we're gonna really have to talk uh, talk about some geography in a couple minutes here, uh, because we're talking an awful lot about DDP. But first, I I, I want to talk about why is she alive? Like, why is she alive? She her theory is that the people that were sent there weren't sent there to kill anyone in particular. They were just sent sent there to disrupt. We theorized last episode that one of the reasons that White Rose, who seems like a very exacting and specific character, would have let a mistake slip, like talking about having a sister when he doesn't have a sister, and that's something that's easily fact-checked. He would only do that because he would know that she was going to die the next day, that she had in fact been marked and targeted, which is a theory that went on Reddit ever since the end of, at, end of last episode, that when the Dark Army people in the mask saw her at the airport, they were already watching her. When she spoke out of turn at the meeting and said, we want the Dark Army, the look that Minister Zhang, that White Rose gave her was doom, and that she essentially signed her own death certificate at that point. And yet, and yet, Mike, she's still alive. So that's the, the million-dollar question in the room that I'd like to hear your thoughts on is why. Why did DDP survive this? What is White Rose's gain by leaving her alive? And why did White Rose tell her all of these facts about his or her own life in light of the fact that she lives? This is going to sound a little insane. Uh, please. What, what if White Rose is trying to groom DDP as an FBI mole for the Dark Army. I think that, yes, there was a lot of personally revealing details that existed in that conversation at the end of the previous episode, but that was on both ends as well. You know, DDP admitted that the reason why she joined the FBI is because she is disgusted by the brutality of the world, but at the same time, she's fascinated by it. What if White Rose in that moment saw something in her? 
a, a, a detail within her character that he could exploit in a way to tell her, yes, you and I view the world in the exact same way, which is why you need to join my cause. Your supervisors, they don't believe you. Your cohorts, they're smudging fingerprints on things and ruining evidence. Here you can do some good for the world, and you can take a look at the brutality of the world under that microscope that you'd like to. Again, this is really, really out there at this point, considering that the FBI and the Dark Army are vehemently against each other, considering that one open fired on the other one <laughs> a couple of weeks ago. But that being said, I could see some legitimacy to down the line DDP being brought before White Rose to act as someone on the inside on behalf of the organization. Well, look, I'm not going to reject that out of hand because let me tell you where that works better for me, which is we talked last episode, and and we're we're going to talk about Santiago, Chile. We're going to get into it. We talked last episode about Washington Township and about the fact that in that conversation with DDP and with Minister Zhang, with White Rose, in, in his closet and around his mansion in Beijing, that... She said she's from Teaneck, New Jersey, and we speculated that Washington Township uh, was there, Washington Township, in that same area in Bergen County, uh, and we kind of looked up and we saw that there was one in southern New Jersey in a county or near uh, someplace, I think, that's pronounced Gloucester, uh, maybe we'd pronounce it uh, Gloucester. Gl- Gl- Gloucester, if Gl- you're from Massachusetts. Gloucester, yeah, Gloucester, if you're from another country, right, or you know, however you want to say, but it was near Gloucester, Gloucester New Jersey. Turns out, and we have to shout out to some uh, intrepid correspondents of post-show recaps, I, I hashtag this Wilpon Geography because both Jay Wilpon and Alex Wilpon independently contacted us here at post-show recaps. The Jersey experts here at post-show recaps, Jay and Alex Wilpon, both remarked that there are actually five different Washington townships in New Jersey. And one of them is, in fact, Mike, get wait for it, it's in Bergen County. It's about five miles from Teaneck. And so it starts to become a much more interesting story of DDP if she is actually somehow involved or related to what happened with E-Corp and with the toxic spill. If she was somehow affected or impacted by the same events, which, are, which created Elliot, Angela, and Darlene's issues with Evil Corp. If you have that person and if her story about love involves someone like Angela... Because we saw Angela making out with Shayla in season one. It's possible that Angela was the person who proposed to DDP and that was the walkout. It's possible it involves someone completely not related to the story. Uh, but what it's if it poss- involves Ollie? Oh, my gosh. That, he would be the kind of guy. Was Josh Groban playing while the engagement happened where they had yes, a bar? He, yeah. he was singing. He was ironically singing You Raise Me Up as he got down on one knee. So that is uh, – that isn't. I mean there are a lot of possibilities here. Uh, we, you know, we didn't just get con- – we had several different people uh, other than Jay and Alex contacted us about this Washington Township thing. Some people have speculated that Sam Esmail has confirmed that it is the southern New Jersey Washington Township. I read the article that was sent that Sam – Esmail talked about that. That seemed to be the reporter's own surmising of mm. that. I will find that article and post it with this uh, this podcast so that you can you can make your own decision on that. I think the mystery of which Washington Township in New Jersey uh, is very much still in play here. And I think that it's entirely possible, uh, as Jay Wilpon points out, that uh, that this is the Washington Township 
uh, in Bergen County near Teaneck and that is, in fact, going to be tied in to this story. Those seem like very weird details to throw into the story if they're not going to be related. If that's who DDP is, if her primary motivation for getting involved in the FBI had something to do with wanting to take down companies like E-Corp, Perhaps, perhaps she could be persuaded to be an agent against E-Corp in some way, shape, or form. I don't think we've seen enough of her to say that she'd be an agent against her own country, though. And that's the part where I have a little bit of an issue, because having her be involved to the degree where White Rose has spared her to turn her suggests to me that it's possible that there is there's that, that she's going to be turned in a way that's going to hurt the whole country. I think she basically said that a lot of bad things happen and she's fascinated by it, but she's also fascinated by things by in the response to the bad things, the good things that happen. So I'm not a hundred percent sure that, that she's going to be an all bad character turning against America. But if you told me she could be used against evil corp, I might buy that. And I might buy all in based on this, uh, based on this version of the reading where Washington township and, and this version of, uh, of Washington township is right there in Bergen County. Yeah, especially if White Rose promises her all the turkey sandwiches she can eat for the rest of her life. <laughs> especially if they have mayo and they're like really good and they come from a very yeah, you specific Yeah, you get your, your uh, in-house Ahmed. He'll be your personal chef for the rest of your life. Yeah, well, that's in, that's uh, that would be great. Uh, that would be great. And so, I don't know. We uh, we we had we, like I said, we also had emails from Alex Teruso on this subject, uh, and that there maybe Alex said maybe uh, he's point. Alex really got into a lot about Philly and New York, which I won't get into here. Uh, but there was that there was that the possibility there. Uh, so there are other you know there are other possibilities. We had the the link came from Rob Williams. Rob sent a really good breakdown. Uh, Rob even analyzed the other Washington Township in Morris County, which seemed to be the least likely. Although there was a public library there the bergen township of washington the bergen county washington township does also have a public library whereas the gloucester county one does not uh but they're you know they're and sam esmail is from hoboken new jersey mm-hmm. so uh and, and rob posts a very long email i'm not going to read it all but rob has some really good research on this and rob has the newjersey.com article where the author is claiming the clarification and that's the gloucester county one i'm not necessarily buying that from the read of that article so I don't know. Uh, it's really still up in the air. But I think that that's the DDP element of that is a really fascinating connection that I yeah. think really, really matters. And I think mm-hmm. that we've, we've talked about it a lot here, but it's really minor on the show. So I really do hope it comes into play or we've wasted a lot of words on it. <laughs> well, maybe this is comparable to like back in the early days of The Simpsons where people were like, Springfield's got to be here based on this geography. Maybe sure. we're just chasing after, uh, we're chasing after a carrot that's ever going to be dangling in front of us just out of our reach yeah uh i mean it's entirely it's entirely possible and yet and i don't know if washington township was was chosen for that reason because strangely i mean i guess maybe i don't know this but i didn't realize like more than one uh city in the same state could have the same name i never thought that was a thing you guys in new jersey do you do you you do what you want but that, hey uh, i guess we'll name this one washington township as well uh, oh okay forget oh about it yeah i'm getting a little offended there mike uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, not really. Uh, but yeah, I'm not really offended, I should say. But yeah, that is, uh, I, I don't know what's going on there in New Jersey. Uh, they built the, they built the turnpike there through the middle of the state at some point. So things probably, there was some upheaval.
evil at some point. And they're like, oh my gosh, there were all these cities that we never knew about. Uh, and there's, turns out there's several Washington townships here. Uh, so maybe once they built a turnpike, that was the only time they actually realized they were all there. Who knows? But I, I think it's fascinating because the DDP connection. Because we have two more DDP scenes in this episode. So let's hit them real quickly. Uh, she was talking to her boss. We saw Price. We talked about all of that. Uh, the the we, we see Angela. We'll, we'll we'll get to the DDP in a second because we'll see we see Angela getting ready to take off. They're waiting for the box. And Mike, the fascinating thing that happens in this scene is that when Cisco shows up to drop off the box, someone is in the room that knows who Cisco is. That that really sets off some alarms here. How about that, Mike? Yeah, this is going to be the first of many of Angela's very very long pauses that take place over the course of this episode. And I mean, it's a varying effect how much she plays things off, but for now, she obviously, as the previous on alluded to, she knows that this is the guy that gave the CD to Ollie that in fact basically forced her to hack into all safe to really make this whole thing begin. Once she sees him, she realizes who he is yet. She decides not to say anything, but you and I spoke about this before we started recording, Antonio. There was someone else in the room that might also know about the history between the two of them. Yeah, uh, and that's, that's, that's the weirdness of what's happening with Darlene, right? And Cisco and Angela, like the three of them all maybe know what's going on. We saw Darlene uh, a couple episodes ago in the exploit episode. That was the last episode in the beginning. Darlene was hacking Angela's computer, copying all of her emails, presumably making a disk image of everything that was there and putting it on a flash drive. We don't know. We speculated at the time that Darlene might have been doing that and might have been hacking Angela's computer to find ways that she could exploit Angela. And see, you know, theoretically, the way that we speculated that that would most likely play out is that when Darlene says to Angela, I hope no one else knows about that CD, she then goes to meet with Ollie, who says he's met with the FBI on several occasions. And we speculated maybe that wasn't the FBI that he was meeting with. Maybe Darlene knew about the stuff with Ollie and Angela and Cisco all along. Presumably Darlene would have known about that through Elliot or Cisco, and that Darlene took action with Ollie to work Angela. That it was Darlene who wanted to use Angela, and that Darlene was hacking Angela, exploiting her by manipulating Ollie into making Angela feel so vulnerable that she had to act. That was our theory last episode. And Angela said at the time there was, a, there was a conversation in that scene when Darlene is in Angela's apartment. Darlene basically said, implied that he told me all about the CD at Evil Corp. Darlene's line is something along the lines of, you mean you want to be implicated in the person who installed the CD that led to the biggest hack of all time? And Darlene says, yeah, he told me. And implying, I think, that Elliot told that Elliot told her. But I'm trying to remember a scene where El- Angela tells Elliot about all of that, where that's something that Elliot, that Elliot and Angela discussed, that Elliot ever knew about that. The way I tracked it, Mike, and we did talk about this, this before the podcast, the way I tracked it was that Elliot didn't know initially about the stuff that was happening with Cisco, that the Dark Army, specifically White Rose, through Cisco, was doing that because Elliot pivoted away from the original plan. Because of Angela in the first scene, in the final scene of the pilot, in the, the, the boardroom scene, not the quite the final scene, when Terry Colby is verbally undressing Angela and shouts her out of the room and essentially gets her demoted off of the case, Elliot to that point, has been trying to decide whether to frame Terry Colby or not. The F Society part of him and the Mr. Robot character want that to happen. They want Terry Colby on the slab. In part, I think we come now to realize, because Terry Colby was in part responsible for what happened to Mr. Robot. 
But at the time, Elliot wasn't sure that he would actually do it. Yeah, he helped get the server offline. Yeah, he left the F Society back door in there. But he didn't have to swap Terry Colby's IP address in there. He chose to do that at the 11th hour. Tyrell Wellick has remarked on this. He thought it was just a power play at the time, that he was just making a move on Terry Colby. And he was actually okay with it because if Colby went down, that would help Wellick. And we speculated a ton about this, whether Elliot did this in cahoots with Wellick or whether all that went down. But Elliot deviated from the Dark Army's plan. And that made the Dark Army feel like we need to cover our own asses on this. So what they did was they sent Cisco out to get some leverage on Angela or Ollie to get in the back door at All Safe, which is exactly what they did. They, they installed the disk at their house, got onto their own personal computers, got some, some lucid pictures or illicit pictures and uh, lurid pictures and some illicit pictures and the student loan and financial data. And we're going to ruin their lives. And in response, they said, or you can take this disk into work and install it and give us access to AllSafe, which is what Angela ultimately did and framed Ollie for. That access allowed the Dark Army to see the honeypot that was set up and is why the Dark Army called off the initial hack after Elliot set up the Raspberry Pi. They called it off. They wouldn't go through with it. Darlene was very upset, and it didn't happen. And later, White Rose reconvened with Elliot and said, there's a honeypot. Elliot didn't know about it up to that point. Elliot certainly didn't know that the Dark Army had ways of viewing the back doors at all safe, let alone Elliot did not know what was through those back doors, which was the honeypot. So, oh man, don't comment. Bite your tongue, Mike. Uh, so, <laughs> wait, I'm waiting for full bloom is my Mr. Robot, and he's yes. just raring to come out. No, put him at bay. Even when I say behind the back doors is the honeypot. So, yeah. So this is all. This is all what was happening. That the Dark Army was always acting on their own to cover themselves. As we're talking about them possibly doing the same thing this season, they did it last season with Elliot, and they did that through Angela and Ollie and exploiting them. That wasn't something Elliot played a role in. In fact, it was a surprise to him when it played out. He got it all figured out. He got the hack executed by the end of episode eight. He's kissing Darlene, forgetting that it's his sister. And then we go into episode nine where he's crazy about everything that's happening with Mr. Robot. And then in episode 10, the post-hack. We didn't see, as far as I can remember, a conversation between Elliot and Angela about that thing that happened with her installing the CD. Mm-hmm. And maybe it happened. Maybe I forgot it. If, somebody, if we did, somebody can remind us in the comments. Uh, it's been a little bit of time since we rewatched several months. So maybe that happened. But maybe it's also possible that Angela was actually that, that Darlene was actually talking about Cisco when she said he told me all about it. He told me this. He told me that. And Angela is and Darlene is using the same exploit that Cisco and the Dark Army used. They're using the same information against Angela to manipulate her again into doing something that they want. The first time it was you could we're gonna we're gonna screw your father up. We're gonna screw up your financial identity. We're gonna leak some pictures of you if you don't put this disc in the drive. She did it. Now they're saying, we know you put the disc in the drive, and we're going to use that against you in order to get you to help hack the FBI. Because if the FBI finds that out, you're ruined anyway. So is it possible that Angela and Darlene are actually at odds and that Darlene maybe knows more than even Elliot? Mike, are you buying into this? Yeah, I'd prefer to go with Occam's razor, I guess, Occam's syringe in this case, that the simplest explanation is often the best. And... I don't know. I just can't believe that if Elliot had known that Angela would get involved in all of this, that he wouldn't have tried to stop it. As much as he is, you know, overwhelmed by what the Dark Army is providing him at the at the end of at the end of this last season, 
he still, I think, would probably take a second to hesitate if he learned, hey, one of your close childhood friends is kind of got uh, blackmailed into doing something on behalf of the Dark Army and really got herself entrenched in this entire dark organization. And so I think if that did happen, it'd be way too important to not show on screen. If it was an off-screen conversation, that makes absolutely no sense to me. So that's why I personally think that Elliot is in the dark here, uh, or in the not in the dark army, I guess, metaphorically speaking. He's, he's in the dark and that he had no idea exactly what was going on. And that Cisco is probably the guy, the uh, eponymous he that Darlene is talking about. Which, as you said... It brings up an interesting dynamic between the two women because as much as Darlene is trying to rely on on uh, on Angela as this sort of like, hey, we were friends back in the day. Like, we're working together for a big cause. We're helping defeat the people that killed our parents. It seems like Darlene is manipulating her. And we go back to the slave master thing. Is, um, is Angela the slave here? In spite of the fact that she has the information that gets her into into evil corp and uh in effect puts into motion what darlene wants to do she's still working on behalf of her and darlene as you said might be manipulating information and what she knows in order to get angela to do that yeah i look darlene did seem very surprised uh, by the reaction between angela and cisco so she may be a really good actress not carly chalking but darlene the character may be a really good actress and may be covering that up or it could be simply that the conversation occurred and we're forgetting it or the conversation occurred off screen any of those explanations are possible. But I like to think that, so that I just think that there was something up with Darlene copying Angela's profile there and putting it on a USB drive. We have so much that we talked about with exploits and so much we talked about about masters and slaves and what we'll see. And, and it, it, there's not a ton of info in it. We're going to get to the, the fingerprints of it all. But we'll see that Darlene is very much leading Angela through this hack and talking in her ear as it plays out. But uh, there, there's something going on. Darlene has stepped into the shoes of Elliot in terms of being in charge of what F society is doing. She's trying to cover all their tracks. We see her executing in-person hacks. She's in fact, she's, she's, we saw last episode that she's taken the tasks of, uh, of a lot of what's going on with F society and she's spacing them out to other people. Uh, she's not, she's really just saying like, you do this and you do that and not really taking responsibility for some of the, the world building, the high level stuff of F society. And she's really focusing on this element of it. So I don't know. I think it's possible that Darlene is working as more of an independent actor than we know, especially mm-hmm. with regard to Angela. We did have the scene last episode between Elliot and Angela where Elliot did know that Angela was going to be involved and Angela convinced Elliot by saying the way I read it I'm either going to be at best found guilty and plea my way out uh, or I'm going to it's going to be much worse than that so I may as well try to erase it altogether and that's ultimately why she wanted to be involved and she did talk her way into it but she only talked her way in after she maybe had been manipulated by Ollie by Angela and by others so I just think it's a that's a really fascinating thing to track going forward is that things may not be as they seem with Darlene either. Not that we're in a different world, but that Darlene maybe have maybe has different motivations than every character that we've seen so far, and maybe is more willing to motivate and manipulate Angela than we've been uh, than we've been really led on to. Uh, we see the way that hack plays out, Darlene goes to the hotel. She pulls a fast one by calling for the maid service. And then when the maid service shows up, uh, cloning, 
getting the maid's ID and getting her way into a hotel room that gives her direct access to the the frequencies that are needed to to kind of point at the evil corp building. So she's there, uh, set up. She's on the phone with Angela. Angela's in the building. Everything's going smoothly, Mike. Angela gets onto the floor, and then she immediately has to go to the bathroom. Yeah, so this whole scene is so well played out. I think. I think this and the fantasy sequence are obviously the big two landmarks of this episode. It's rather interesting that for a show as disjointed as Mr. Robot, I would argue this is probably the most disjointed episode in that you could probably take this as a completely separate episode the entire second half from the first 20 minutes of this. That being said, I mean, I was on the edge of my seat the entire time and it wasn't because I was trying to plant anything under my desk. I mean, first you have this this you know heart pumping song a uh, guan by the suffers playing throughout this entire montage even though interestingly enough it starts playing when darlene does her whole like oceans 11-esque thing or elizabeth salander as you alluded to before of breaking into the hotel room but then when it cuts to angela at ecor it's stark silence and i think it's a nice contrast between you know for darlene it's all smooth sailing it's all been done before whereas angela is probably on pins or syringes and needles uh because this is going to be something very very tricky to do but as soon as she gets off the elevator we have what we presume is a long tracking shot uh in Yurito would be very happy with the cinematography on this of tracking her as she gets off the elevator goes into the bathroom almost gets caught walks out we'll talk about the thomas ross of it all let's do it right now um what a douche <laughs> what a weird douche too and there has been some speculation as to whether he was doing this this hitting on angela right out of the bathroom as a way a form of social engineering to sort of catch her off her guard in a way for him to read her and i mean she did kind of open her pages to him in a way where mobley and darlene are going to try the social engineering like they did at steel mountain i would in effect actually antonio call this whole montage almost a a a female reboot of steel mountain if you will where uh you have someone trying to infiltrate this big organization and you have someone in the ear trying to use social engineering to try to get the person sniffing down their necks to back off it does not work in the case of this guy even though he has an achilles heel in the form of his mother he still refuses the call probably because the uh the allure of some poontang is probably more uh, potent than the allure of calling your mother at this moment but that being said in spite of her very very long and awkward pauses angela at least seems to shrug him off by promising a lunch date the next day but the really fun part about this is even during this very nerve-wracking exchange between the two the camera still stays on them we hear mobley we hear darlene in her earpiece but we're still staying on them and that really makes things more pulse pounding in my opinion because we really get to see the sweat bead down on angela's forehead we're really there with her from the get-go and i think that makes me hop on board with the scene much more in terms of its tension yeah let's talk about that because she does place the femme to sell that exploit which is by the way Coradonna, who josh wiggler interviewed a few um, weeks ago for the Hollywood Reporter, uh, Core has just outdone himself with this hack. I think that the femme to sell setup and the backdoor, I'm sure that it's been patched, but it's really a fascinating idea that you could essentially find your way into a cell phone network by setting up a, a homebrew dummy cell phone tower. I think it's awesome. I think that it's, uh, I think Mobley did a little bit, uh, did, a, did a pretty good job of dumbing it down and explaining it here that it's got its own battery, that it's set up. She's got to plug that battery in. She's, she can't unplug the thing. She sets 
sets up the antenna. She plugs it into a network router that's right there so that it's networked. And then through the, the actual network, which is where Darlene is, is, is perched and getting access, that they can ultimately get into the FBI's phones. I think that's awesome. Great hack. The problem is it does rely on not only social engineering to get into the floor and anytime you're in a situation to talk your way out of it, but it, reply, it relies on the nitty-gritty, as you're pointing out, the stressful part of her actually plugging it in, getting down on the ground and doing that. Darlene reminds her to wipe her prints away. To me, she did a very shoddy job of that. Uh, yep. not, not just on the chair, which we had some emails about that, uh, and we, we understand there was some good feedback uh, that, that, that you can witness her not touching the chair, and that is something that is absolutely that that absolutely happens that she touches the chair and doesn't wipe it down jacob m pointed that out but i noticed she also puts the antennas up on the fem to sell she touches the network cable she touches the underside of things and her wipe job is very slipshod because she's in a rush because she is so stressed mike are we going to find fingerprints there on the chair is it going to be one of those situations where they just say we couldn't get a usable print or, or should we really be worried about this I, I think that there is, a, in a realistic situation, which Mr. Robot is kind of far from it, but in a realistic situation, there is far and away enough incriminating evidence to bring Angela in. Even without the fingerprints, you could go up to the FBI agents and say, oh, were there any suspicious individuals at the time of this? Oh, yeah, there was that one girl that I didn't know that was in the bathroom for a long time and then really spaced out when I was asking her questions for like 10 seconds at a time. Oh, she by the way, like she, had an ear piece. Yeah, she had an earpiece in uh, and she may have been talking to somebody. Yeah, exactly. Like she made herself as highly suspicious as she could. And I mean, there is an interesting screenshot that I saw on Reddit where at the end of the tracking shot, when Angela walks out and she walks down the stairs, there is in the background, even though it's blurry, you see Ross Thomas talking with a couple of other agents. And I believe one of them is DDP, which might inform why she goes down there to interview her at the very, or to talk to her at least at the very end of the episode. But yeah, I feel like Angela's and Darlene's plans, as well-intentioned as they may be, I think are going to come up in smoke. Especially because if we're theorizing that the Dark Army might have bugged this Wi-Fi router in a way to blow up F-Society's game, if that's the reason why the Wi-Fi went down in the first place and Angela trying to execute this other program might be all for naught, it all kind of lays into the Dark Army's traps, which they've been laying out so meticulously over the past two seasons. Yeah, Angela's in trouble. I don't know if she's in trouble with the fingerprint. I don't you know in trouble, gonna, girl. You in trouble, girl. I don't know if she's going to be able to explain this away through some kind of nonsense explanation, but she's in trouble. And she may be in trouble. Like she, they may, That may be an intention. Somebody might have intended for her to get in trouble. As we talked about, she may be a pawn or a rook that somebody wants to try to take off the board. It could be that she's in trouble because they were in such a rush. It was foretold by Trenton and Mobley that things might happen, that it might be a problem. Elliot was very much against Angela being involved, but she's in trouble. She's in trouble because, as you point out, DDP does show up to her desk, knows her by name, uh, and is there specifically to see her, recognizes she's still on a call. She's in the middle of a call where she needs to get the Wi-Fi back up and running. It is not clear whether she actually does that by the time that the episode ends. If she does that, then Darlene might be able to delete the security footage theoretically, but there's still the in-person statement from the dumb agent who has what's going on, the mother-mother part, as his ringtone when his mom calls, who's very interested in her bathroom habits. So there's that very... 
very clear loose end that's happening there, as well as perhaps actual physical evidence of her fingerprints on the chair. So she's in trouble, Mike. She's in big, big trouble. Starts with the T, and that rhymes with P. And what does that stand for? That stands for pool, which you might drive your car into if you're not looking at the road. Oh, yeah. That would be bad, especially if you were following the wrong GPS or something. Yeah, we don't want that. So, yeah, that could well be what's going on here. Uh, it, it's very, very dangerous territory that Elliot's in. Dark waters. Could be a pool. Could be otherwise uh, for Angela. And, and in, in turn, probably for F Society, things are really coming apart at the seams. We, we really talked about the rest of what happened on this episode. We do have the scene with Elliot being thrown into the basement, coming to the, 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 the getting all bent out of shape and coming into the, the moment where he falls into Mr. Robot's arms. A wonderful moment from Remy Malik Collapses, crying, thank you, thank you. And then we have the great memory of the fight at school where we do have the the inception if you will or the the genesis of don't tell anyone this story where elliot is riding shotgun and hoping everything it will be somewhere where he wants to go and elliot actually getting stopping just short of naming the business mr robot so that's the rest of the episode dave baker did ask how long can f society continue without elliot's active participation and i guess i'm wondering do you think that f society is about to blow up big time I would say so, and part of it might be because of Darlene's leadership in a way. To answer Dave's question, I think it can kind of function on its own because Darlene has sort of stepped up. She sort of claimed her blood right to the throne in a way. And as a result, I feel like she's – I don't know how much time has exactly passed. Uh, I did not mention that you know Ray's dog has died, and the last time we saw the dog, it was alive. So I'm not sure how much time has passed here. I know it's July 3rd. 2015 when angela attempts the hack here but that being said depending on how far elliot's gone they could have been running the operation completely without him for a while now maybe they're functioning completely autonomous which again going back to this master and slaves theme maybe it's almost like a slave's revolt that they decide you know darlene you're our misa in a way let's let's overthrow the, the cruel master elliot and let's let's sort of have darlene lead the way but that being said, she's leading them in a very precarious position. I mean, she led them right into the jaws of the FBI, which, albeit they're a little toothless now, but they still have a pretty mean bite. And with the FBI also closing in simultaneously on checking out F Society and all the stuff that Romero was doing, it seems like they're more and more getting backed into a corner. Well, and she felt the whole the whole reason for that leading them to the jaws, of course, is that she felt through Operation Berenstein that somebody might have been compromised, that they might have had a leak, that they, they needed to get all this information about what was out there. Where's their surveillance? Who's being surveilled? If so, by whom? Like, how does all that actually play out? And that is really the genesis of why Darlene was doing all of this, and we don't have the answer to that. So we don't 100% know uh, everything that's happening there and whether or not someone has been compromised or not and who is Dark Army and who isn't, etc. Sonia McCready sent us a pretty good theory saying that Joanna Wellick was Dark Army and that Tyrell was trying to be involved with IT so that they could do the Dark Army's work. And I think that you have to, you do have to be asking yourself about a lot of these characters. Who is on what side? Who's playing whom? And we see Cisco serving multiple masters. As you've pointed out, who else is serving? multiple masters. We had Sunny MC asking, does Price know? B.D. Wong's character is only Mr. Zhang from China. Do you think he knows about White Rose, leader of the Dark Army? I think it's a fair question. I don't think that he necessarily does. And I think that it's possible that there are a lot of people who don't know who is Dark Army and who isn't. I don't even know if Angela knows that Cisco is serving many masters. A lot of that still has to be determined
present here in this season of Mr. Robot. It very much is a lot of espionage that's going on, a lot of, uh, a lot of just really great stuff that's ultimately playing out. I don't see how anyone should have a problem with this season or this episode because I think the pieces are moving in very intriguing and in very fascinating ways. And I think it remains to be seen how it will all play out. But I'm, my, my head is just awash with all these ideas about yeah. who could be Dark Army, who's turning on whom, who's serving multiple masters, who's being exploited, who's the person that's doing the exploiting, uh, who, where, where, who's the primary mover, who's doing all the different things, and who's moving against whom, and what is the bigger story as we continue to lens back. Mr. Robot, as you pointed out, we said it was like a 10-episode movie in season one, but that movie sort of ended with the reveal of what was Mr. Robot and the hack being pulled off, but that's not the story of Mr. Robot at all. The story is much, much bigger, and it turns out, as I sort of indicated last podcast, it may be that we're going to end up re-watching Mr. Robot again when we pull the lens back, and we see, holy crap, this whole time, the Dark Army was really doing X, and Evil Corp, via this person, was really doing that and their bigger game was about this and this is why this piece got moved specifically into this position so i whether or not that's angela whether she was specifically selected by cisco with that cd out in front of their office whether or not she's the one who's part of price's plan and bd wong uh his characters are specifically trying to take her off the map we have to wait to find out, but I'm fascinated by the waiting and fascinated and can't wait for next week to find out yeah. whatever more we get about it. What else from this episode, Mike, can we talk about? So I have a couple of small things, and then I have a couple of questions that I'd like to ask that will kind of lead into this, the back half of this season. Uh, just a couple of little quick Easter eggs uh, that are connected to, you know, Sam Esmail loves pop culture. Uh, I don't know if you noticed that Darlene's code name that came up on her phone when she called was Marble Cake. Yeah, that's a 4chan call out, right? It is. Yep. So 4chan a while ago hacked, I think it was like Time's list of the 100 most influential people. Yep. They don't they not only put their founder at the top, but they re- arranged it in a way where if you took the first letter of each of the people, it spelled out uh, Marble Cake is a game or the game or, or something like that. So that's a, that's a fun reference. Uh, the password that Angela has to enter in order to uh, get the Wi-Fi back up is Joshua, which is what Matthew Broderick enters into the computer to talk with the artificial intelligence in War Games, which I think has a lot of connections to Mr. Robot as well. So we are going to go to Houston and get involved in some military and aeronautics stuff with Elliot. I think Matthew Broderick has a cameo that's coming up. It's, it sucks that we missed it out in the, uh, the 80s and 90s of it all, but I think he, he still has a part to play here. A couple of lingering questions I have from this. So obviously Angela did not reveal her history with Cisco, even though we talked about the fact that it might already be semi-public knowledge. Do you think that Cisco's involvement is going to be a little bit of a, a limitation to Angela, a little bit of a hesitation. I mean, when the, when she does the, when she puts in the router and she leaves and Darlene says like, Oh crap, the Wi-Fi is down. Angela gets pretty incredulous. She says like, okay, well, I'm not going to do anything anymore. I'm done. Bye. And I'm wondering if part of that is just due to the stress or if part of that is she's realizing, as we said before, Darlene might not be revealing all this information to her and that she is getting involved in an organization that she might not want to. Yeah, entirely possible. Ruined her life and made her so stressed out, all of the stuff with Cisco. And when she realizes these are the people that Darlene is literally and figuratively in bed with, it's not 
not something that's very appealing about her work, to say the least. So that's a big problem for sure. Uh, and I don't know exactly how that's going to get resolved, but you can imagine a scenario where Darlene, uh, or so, I'm sorry, where Angela is being put to the test by the FBI, really being put under the hot lamps, and they're putting the screws to her, and she's like, you know what? Screw it. Like, who do I have to protect? And Darlene, the person who's in league with that person who already set me up, like maybe that's a situation where because of Cisco's involvement, she does she does she is more interested in working with the FBI. Yeah, I could see that for sure. Uh, so you brought up the institutionalized theory that you had been talking about since the beginning of this season, and I'm definitely buying into that. The only trepidation that I have is sort of the Ray stuff that happened over the past few episodes, and if we're going with the whole analog here that Ray is sort of uh, a counselor at this psychiatric center that we presume Elliot is institutionalized in, how this connects is he's sneaking Elliot behind the scenes to do his dirty work. That seems a little complicated. There is a theory that I found on EW.com, and we can probably post it in the show notes because it is very lengthy and very comprehensive. But it essentially boils down to the writer believes that it's not necessarily that Elliot is using this as to sort of mask the reality that he's in a psych ward. He's sort of repressing a memory. And this writer believes that maybe Edward, his father, a.k.a. Mr. Robot, fell into a similar type of situation with someone like Ray earlier on in his life. You know, we saw at the end of this episode that Edward admits that he was fired, but they want to open up a computer store. Obviously, that takes a lot of money. Odds and ends need to be put together. There is a possibility, this writer alludes to, that there was a very similar situation going on in his past, and Elliot is sort of having this play out in his head as a way of displaying this very traumatic memory out in front of him. So I don't know how much water it holds at the end of the day, but I think it just might be another theory to present up next to this institution theory. Yeah, we'll link that theory. Uh, there, There is... Look, Elliot is exploitable for any number of reasons. He's exploitable because of what happened with his dad. He's exploitable because he has a predisposition to mental disorders because of family history and because of what happened with his mom and because of his genetics. He's just – he's exploitable for any number of reasons. Is it possible that someone like that was previously exploited? Is it possible that he has other bad memories that he's repressed that Mr. Robot doesn't want to let him remember? Uh, is that why Mr. Robot was trying to scare him off? Off of Ray, all those things are entirely possible. That theory didn't make a ton of sense to me because of the timing. Uh, there could have been some other situation. I don't know how much of an analog it would be because I don't think there were Silk Roads in the early days of the internet in the way that Elliot is dealing with them now. I know there weren't Bitcoin wallets, so I don't know a exactly. Better time, a better time back then. There was Alf and no Bitcoin. Yes, exactly. Alf and no Bitcoin. Uh, and used to be you could trust in the story, Mike. Uh, if you could vilify the villains and trust in the heroes. It's not that way anymore. But uh, you can imagine a world gone insane, which is where we are right now. But yeah, there are there are, are many ways to exploit Elliot. Is that, does that mean that he was exploited or that when Mr. Robot was sick, Mr. Robot himself was susceptible to an exploit? That's entirely possible. I, I don't know. Uh, I think that those I think the theory is good. It's ripe because the situation and circumstances are good. But I don't, I don't know. You, I will link the theory. You guys can get yeah. into it in the comments. It's just, it's just sure. something else to kind yeah, of yeah. purvey since i know the the psych ward is probably the leading theory at this point it's always good to present other options especially sure. as you said there are so many questions to present one more thing i want to say about this episode 
I feel like we need to give major kudos to Christian Slater here. I think this is by far the best work that he's done this series. Maybe it's because, like I said before, he doesn't need to do the one-note Agent of Chaos that was Mr. Robot before. I think he did a great job in the sitcom specifically, and it is interesting to know. I know we did get a question about, you know, has Christian Slater done this type of stuff before? He was in a sitcom, ironically called Breaking In, that aired on Fox in 2012, so he definitely has experience. And between the, the fantasy sequence work and his work in this last flashback as well, I feel like Christian Slater was really able to flex his muscles in a way. So I had to give him major kudos. Yeah, he's great. Uh, and he was, he was really great in the sitcom dad role. I, the pivot from when he was just being silly and he's hitting Tyrell with the tire iron and there's just a lot of laughter and laugh tracks going on there. The pivot to the, the more, you know, moments where he's taking Elliot and walking him aside and really saying like, this is where we were headed. We were headed this way. I was trying to keep you from the pain. The pivot is great from Christian Slater. And you can understand why Remy Malik does ultimately, why Elliot does ultimately collapse into his arms. Because this is no longer a hostile Mr. Robot. This is no longer, as you say, the one note kind of agent of chaos. This is a more multifaceted, multidimensional actor and performance out of Christian Slater and out of how Elliot is imagining Mr. Robot. Again, keeping in mind, Mr. Robot is in Elliot's head. And at this time when Elliot is really at his at his worst, what he's thinking of are more tender moments with his dad, happier moments with his dad. And the version of his dad that he's manifesting is one that is more tender and more caring and more happy. So Christian Slater does a great job with that material, like he does with the Agent of Chaos material. He but slatered it. He really did slater it. Okay, what else, Mike? That's all I have for now, but looking ahead to next episode, it seems like, like you said, we're going to have maybe Mr. Robot's form of a bottle episode where, as you said, Elliot is in that basement next to his metaphorical water heater serving as that slave. We don't know exactly what Ray's plans are for him. He said they have a he has a big day ahead of him, but this is really going to be the time for Elliot and Mr. Robot to talk which is going to be very interesting again after Elliot has seemed to kind of soften on Mr. Robot. We'll see how he asks or how he deals with him after the fact. And it seems like Tyrell is coming back into the conversation. So I know the big question that a lot of fans have been asking is when are we going to see what happened to Tyrell? It might be as soon as next episode. Yeah, might be. Uh, We need to get to that at some point soon, I think. I think that is the chief frustration uh, for all the viewers out there who are frustrated at all. The CFO frustration. Yeah, that's the big frustration, is is that we don't know... What is happening with Wellick? We still don't have the answer for that. Um, we just don't. We just don't have that. So that is, I think, where people are getting the most frustrated. And we, the sooner we get to that, the better. I think at this point, we need, we're, we need to turn the corner and, and we need to get rid of our baggage so we can put our donut on, Mike. Well, I got the tire iron. All right. Well, speaking of tire irons, it's time to beat our way out of this one. What are your suggested hashtags? I've got a couple if you can't think of any. Yeah, I've got a slew. I've got uh, Mr. Rocket in lieu of our hopeful, <laughs> hopefully not a possible future where we go into space. Uh, DTPTSD, uh, Groban proposal for the fan fiction that Ollie was the one who proposed to DDP, Occam Syringe. Do you have any others? Let's see. I like DDP PTSD. I also like Wilpon Geography. That would have that should have been the hashtag for last episode. Uh, that's a really funny one for me. Uh, but yeah, I like that. Um, I like I like DT, DDP PTSD. Yes, DDP getting two weeks in a row in terms of her acronyms. 
Yeah, DDP PTSD. So you can tweet at us wish that, with that hashtag if you want to talk about this episode specifically with other people who are tweeting about this episode. If you use that hashtag, you can track that down. Hashtag DDP PTSD. You can always tweet at me at AC Mazzara with two Zs and one R. Mike is at a Mike Bloom type. You can always subscribe. As I said, I'm saying always a lot, but you can do that anytime. You can go to postshowrecaps.com slash Mr. Robot iTunes, MR Robot iTunes, or postshowrecaps.com slash iTunes for our main Post Show Recaps feed. That will get us all the coverage we're doing here at Post Show Recaps, including Mike's most recent Suicide Squad podcast. Mike, what else are you up to these days podcast-wise? So I'm always doing a film podcast with AJ Mass, also a podcaster here on Post Show Recaps, called The Hamster Factor, which takes a look at some rather eclectic films, probably not as mind-rendering as Mr. Robot, though we did talk about Primer, which is probably one of the most confusing movies I've ever seen. But if you haven't, checked that out in iTunes. We cover movies such as the aforementioned Primer, The Blair Witch Project, Donnie Darko, Lost Highway, a slew of films. We've done 18 at this point. We're recording one next week as well. So feel free to check that out. Otherwise, again, make sure you're subscribed to Post Show Recaps. I know there was a, an emergency SNL podcast going on as well with other people talking about, you know, replacements. Uh, I don't think Taron Killam's rat tail was cut out anytime soon, but there might have been a very similar situation that happened in the past couple of weeks. But otherwise, stay subscribed to Post Show Recaps and let your mind just drift away. Yeah, let your mind just drift away. Imagine a world gone insane. That's a world without people subscribing to Post Show Recap. So please join the party. And thank you, as always, for listening. We really appreciate everything that you do in terms of sharing feedback and downloading and listening to the podcast. Josh will not be back next week. Josh will still be wherever he is. I think he's maybe in a trunk somewhere. Uh, but the week after that, Josh will be back. We, we may record an emergency podcast with Josh in light of the fact that this episode was so – Josh loves too many cooks. And so this was right at Josh's wheelhouse. A lot of people have been uh, messaging me saying, oh, my gosh, can you believe Josh missed that episode? So we'll, we'll do a, a, probably do a, an emergency podcast covering up uh, – catching up with Josh before Josh jumps right back into the episodic recaps. But, Mike. You and I will be back next week to talk about. Yes, is it, does, do I have a story arc? Does that technically count as an arc? Am I more than? I'm a, or am I a recurring recurring guest star? I got news for you. You have an arc, but it's ending next week, buddy. Oh boy! Yeah, oh so boy. look forward to that. We'll see how that comes to an end. Stay tuned. We'll see how the untimely demise of Mike Bloom, the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie, or the discreet massacre of the bourgeoisie, comes to play. You should cover <laughs> my, that. My, my planet needs me. You should cover that on uh, on the Hamster Factor. By the way, the discreet massacre of the bourgeoisie. Yes, so, the the a minute romp of nudity and blood. I yes, cannot I, wait. You love jump scares, as I've learned from the uh, from the Hamster Factor. You love horror films. So yeah, listen, I I hit my limit with the body horror that happened in this episode. God help us if Elliot gets beat up anymore. Yeah, so there we go. All right, well, listen, thank you guys again for listening. Take care, everybody. Bye.